Sup freaks, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. Another in-person interview. Had Jeff Vandrew swing through town, swing through my back deck. We sat down, talked about a bunch of things that I think you freaks are going to enjoy. Very, very dense conversation. Always enjoy sitting down with Jeff and talking through these subjects as he has one of the most unique perspectives that I've ever come across in my life. This episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by our good friends at the Cash App. You freaks already know all about them. They're helping you stack sats. They're helping you send sats, receive sats. And they're letting you DCA into sats as well as sell sats if you need to. Uh, you can set it and forget it with the Cash App. You want to buy every day, every week, every two weeks. You can set it and forget it. DCA, just auto stack into Bitcoin. Uh, on top of that, they're making sats a standard. Instead of buying fractions of Bitcoin... You can buy whole sats, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions, if you please. Hundreds of millions, if you're going to go be a whole coiner. Uh, sats, the standard, is is a good way to, to think of, of Bitcoin and sats stacking. On top of that, they have Cash App investing. If you want to invest in stonks, uh, Cash App is letting you invest as little as $1, so you can stack a sliver of stonks. A sliver of a stock, excuse me. If your favorite stock is a little too expensive, uh, out of your price range, you can buy as little as $1. It seems like the TikTok stock traders are moving into Dogecoin down now, though. So it'll be interested to see if if that trend follows into Bitcoin. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, Cash App Investing is subsidiary of Square uh, and is member SIPC. And as always, remember... Now, because Cash App is directly connected to your bank account, there's no four to five day waiting periods. You can start stacking sats today. Cash App may even be your bank account. You can get an account number and a routing number and direct deposit your paychecks into the app itself. Cut cut the banks out. All right, I guess this would be a new bank. Uh, as always, use the code stacking sats. That's one word, S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. <laughs> Owls across. Download the Cash App. Use the code Stacking Sets and enjoy this long conversation with Jeff Andrew. Take care. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. Sitting down Wednesday morning. In person, second in-person interview in the last three weeks. I'm very excited for this. This is somebody uh, who's been on the podcast twice before, and considering the climate in the world right now, I think this is the perfect guest to have on right now uh, to build on our prior conversations. Welcome back, Jeff Andrew. Jeff, how are you? Great. What an intro, man. It's great, great to be here. Well, I said that earnestly. Like, I appreciate I think, that. I think you are uh, actually a perfect person to be speaking with right now. Especially considering the last two conversations we've had on this podcast. I think yeah. the climate in the world right now uh, is just a perfect setup to build on those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, as, as I think we've talked about even just online and before we started recording, 
a lot it's a lot it's becomes a lot easier to understand the sort of wild series of current events that we're passing through if you look at it from a perspective of class and of political economy i think whether you agree with anything that like prescriptions that i might have talked about in the past my goal or not my goal is that sort of giving people tools to look at this from a class perspective from a political economy perspective if for no other reason that they'll understand it better yeah and well there seems to be a lot of confusion so if we can help people understand yeah and well that sounded kind of arrogant on my part by the way i don't have all the answers (laughs) i can just give you my this is my one guy's perspective that i hope you find useful well, all right. So let's start. Let's start with COVID. Obviously, we haven't spoken since the virus uh, started taking over the world. Uh, so we've had the virus spreading, which is one thing, and then we've had the state's reaction to the virus spreading yep. and uh, people's reaction to the state's reaction. Uh, in the beginning, at least from my perspective, it was you take the precautionary principle, right? Mm-hmm. You overreact when you don't when there's so many unknowns, and then as the data rolls through, you should make better decisions. And in my opinion. Uh, just watching all this, uh, the, it was bad in the beginning. I was scared. I locked down, moved my family down to South Jersey to get away from the city, which I think was a good idea. And I'm not going back to the city now, <laughs> which I still think is a good idea. But um, You had to get out of there anyway. Yeah, yeah. You can't live in a 750-square-foot studio apartment with an infant. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense, especially during a lockdown. Um, but it seems like as more data is rolling in, we know who this virus is, is attacking and, and potentially it's the, the strands are getting weaker. Uh, it doesn't seem like the states or the state is loosening up their grip on, on the lockdown. What's your perspective of this whole thing? Well, yeah, I, there's, I think a couple things to think in mind when you look at the lockdown first is who is benefiting and who is not. And this is important to look, regardless of whether you think the current actions are, warranted or not warranted what your opinion is on the science on the virus i still think it's important to look at who benefits and who doesn't because that's going to tell you where potential biases come in you know things of that nature so when you look at a virus like this i think there's a giant misconception at least in popular media not maybe not among listeners of this show per se that if you are opposed to the strict, the more strict lockdown uh, procedures, etc., that you're sacrificing grandma for the economy, right? I think that's something you hear a lot, right? Like you're sacrificing sick people, weak people, etc., for the economy, and that if you have that belief, your frame must necessarily be one where you care primarily about profit, you know, things of that nature. That's a. There's a lot of problems with looking at things that way. First of all. I really don't like this idea, particularly in modern times, that we've that you can even say something is good or bad for the quote unquote economy versus individual actors. And I think that this is really come to the fore in the covid response, because I'll give you an example. The economy, quote unquote, is apparently terrible right now. Right. But Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, these guys are richer than ever. We've seen news stories that their net worth has skyrocketed. The stock market's in good shape, uh, you know. So it's certainly not a problem if you're a Goldman Sachs partner, right? The this particular injury to the economy has only hurt very specific groups of people, um, working class people, of course, being one of those groups. Um, but even if you want to set them aside for a second, I mean, it's only specific parts of you know the business owner or capitalist class that that's been affected, you know. 
think about how different this is if you own a gym versus another type of business or a restaurant. Think you know, or yeah, you know, like, an even better example. Landry's is like a giant restaurant chain. They own like a million of these different restaurant chain brands. They're struggling, but. Netflix is uh, having record numbers, right? So I don't think it's useful to look at things in those in those terms. It's it's more it's better to look at things in terms of who's winning and who's losing, especially and and, and in terms of the stock market. The, what I think is particularly wrong is to say, oh, like you know, opposition to the um, lockdowns is driven primarily by people that value the market above people. And we've seen that that's just not true. The market ha- is perfectly happy with, with the lockdown because at this point, you know, for reasons that many guests on your show have hashed out, the stock market needs the economy like a fish needs a bicycle, right? Like those are, <laughs> those are just not... They're not correlated. Yeah, not you can do anything with the stock market, you know, if, you're, if you pump enough money into it. So I just don't think that's the right way to look um, at the lockdowns. I view it as... Uh, a huge consolidation of economic power uh, for a couple reasons. Number one, who can survive the lockdowns the best? It's going to be the largest, uh, the largest businesses, the largest competitors that are going to outsurvive their smaller competition, right? The smaller competition is going to fall by the wayside first and they're done. And then when the lockdown ends in the long term, that's great for you if you're the larger of your competition. And then number two, it's, it's, it helps very specified industries over others. For instance, the tech industry I mean, you have to just be smiling every day, I guess, if you're Bezos when you wake up looking at this because people can't, in a lot of places, can't go to the store or afraid to go to the store. So what are they doing? They're ordering online. So I I just think it's a very multifaceted problem there. And it actually, when you look at it through that lens, I think it's more likely that if you want to talk about who, you know, quote unquote, rich people or powerful people in, in the modern U.S. economy, what they would prefer it's certainly not a more open economy. I think that they're very happy with the current lockdown. So I think that's something to consider when you look at, you know, biases in one in one direction or the other on the lockdown, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, me personally, I've been affected. My wife was laid off. Yeah. Uh, my, my parents own a coffee shop and uh, my dad does that as well as the general manager at a couple of restaurants in, yeah. around our town. And, They've they've suffered pretty. They're getting shellacked, I'm sure. They're getting shellacked, and then what's the other stat? The one unemployment stat. Um, people have been fired that probably won't find a job again, or like permanent yeah. unemployment. I think that stat's been been flying as well, and it's weird. And uh, there are people cheering this. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't know if you saw this. I'm just spitting out data here, right? So don't get mad at me if you disagree uh, on the the current. Uh, you know, I'm not a doctor. I guess is the way the way that I'll uh, I'll uh, preface this. But you know, the death rate's falling, right? I mean, at, we used to think at one point that the infection fatality rate might have been like ten times what the flu is, and now it seems it's more like double, based on the 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 CDC's best estimates, and that seems to be falling drastically um, as we speak. Death rates are going down um, to the point where we're barely considered the CDC's definition of a pandemic at this point. You have to be more than 5% of all deaths in the U.S. to be considered a pandemic under CDC rules. In the last week where data was compiled, we were at 59 
So, you know, we're, we're barely teetering on there. For, for reference, during flu season, the flu tends to be between 5 and 7% of U.S. deaths um, in, during a flu season, depending on how bad that flu season is. So, you know, you'll see that data. And then Bloomberg yesterday put out a headline that I tweeted that said, you know, falling death rate is nothing to celebrate. And no, no, like no matter what you think should be going on right now or, or how lockdowns should be continued, not continued, your opinion on masking, reducing death is always something to be celebrated. You know, I think that was a mask off moment that somebody let their let the fact that they're rooting for this to continue for a while longer, uh, you know, slip. Well, that's the one thing where my, like, Alex Jones tinfoil hat's been on. It's like the, and we've had side conversations about this too, like the, the reaction from the government seems like a bit of a conditioning uh, exercise. Yeah, there's going to be, that, that, that you touched on something really interesting there, and that what, what that is is like how much of this stuff are they going to attempt to make permanent on us um either through law or through you know people that have power and influence using their cultural influence to do so right those are two different sort of sides to to influence. one coin yeah two you different know? types of influence yeah you and you and i i think they're more similar than a lot of people um who have more of like a right libertarian perspective might think because and we've talked about this on the last pot episode that I did, so I don't want to rehash it too much. But the government is really just one way in a capitalist society. A government is just one way in which the best capitalists are able to impose their will. I mean, that's essentially what it is, um, what they would consider the best way to go. And culture is another way of doing that. And <laughs> sometimes one of those tools is more effective than the other. They're happy to use both of those tools. Well, they've both been wielded pretty pretty right. strongly in the last six months. Yeah, so I was having this discussion with some people last night in terms of, like, what they might try to do to us, you know, forever and, and levels of success. And one thing that sort of came up in my mind is, um, is the masking, right? So if you look at it, and I don't – I. To be clear, I don't think they can actually get this off. I think it'll be too difficult, particularly because you'd have to sort of coordinate 50 different states to try and make this work. But from the perspective of, you know, like a, a of a neoliberal capitalist, the masking is great because you optimally, what do you want people to do in that kind of system? You want them to work and consume because those are those are the two things that are valuable from an economic perspective, right? The mask doesn't prevent them from working. You can, you can make them do whatever you want with the mask on. Uh, the mask, you know, I'd argue probably increases their consumption in a very um, significant way. Because most of the things that we do with our time that don't cost anything, that don't involve consumption, are things that, uh, you know, g generally revolve around human interaction. Spending time with your friends, your family, you have a picnic. I mean, a picnic technically encompasses some level of consumption, but very little. Just going to the beach and hanging out. Yeah, going to the beach, right. All these different things. And masking makes all that stuff much less, much less pleasant, right? So masking, there's this sort of idea in the media that people that have apprehensions about masking do so out of some faux machismo or ultra-libertarianism or, uh, you know, things of that nature or just even just reckless disregard for other humans i actually don't no matter what people say i don't i'm not of the belief that that's what's driving it i think people just find it extremely disconcerting not to see someone else's face i yeah that's yeah. Me, like yeah that's, i mean that's, <laughs> being down here 
Like, yeah. If you're outside, nobody's nobody's wearing, wearing a mask. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Same thing with where I live. No one wears it outside. People take it off the second they get out of the store. And it's not because it's necessarily hot or uncomfortable or they don't or they have some libertarian impulse. It's because they just want to see each other's faces and be part of a society. So the more <clears throat> that you can break down those interpersonal uh, interactions that we all love so much, people have to fill that void with something. And they fill that void with, you know, streaming Netflix, buying stuff on the Internet, pornography, I guess, you know, whatever you want to call it. Stop watching porn. Yeah. So... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's sort of, it's the perfect, the mask is sort of the perfect consumerist accessory for uh, the neoliberal subjects in that way. And it's sort of gotten even meta now as there are companies that are marketing masks as a way to show your individuality, right? Like you can get this, this custom mask that shows your individuality. That's bad stuff. That's like, that's, for the reasons I just gave there, that's almost approaching uh, dystopian levels. Now, the reason I'm hopeful is because, you know, we got 50 states, the masking regulations come at the state level. They kind of have to, because even if the federal government tried to do masking, it's still got, they, what are they going to send the FBI to go enforce masks? Like, that would be pretty difficult. Um, and as soon as, you know, one or two states start stopping it, it's, I think it's going to be hard to get, you know, the rest to, to keep up. Yeah, and how do you try to try to force that on states like south dakota north dakota where right it's exactly right so i I think what we're lucky in in the in the u.s to some extent is that uh we're decentralized enough that that would be hard to do there are certainly places where i think you could get that off if the government was so inclined and to do so for the reasons that i just gave which of course have nothing at all to do with public health one way or the other yeah i mean i totally agree it's it's and that's i think you just described it very eloquently and something i have not been able to like describe in this way is they're trying to break down the interpersonal relationship like matt odell and i talk about this a lot on rabbit hole recap where he's like oh we get to wear masks it's great for like surveillance i'm like i don't know i don't want to like be walking around with a mask on that's my i like saying hi to people like exactly so and this is going to go into something we're going to talk about a little further in with the pod with the cultural revolution and that's when you you know the more you can break down people's cultural affiliate anything that doesn't that, that can't be commoditized right like history can't be commoditized family is family is commoditizable to some extent but not not the way that they really want to not not to the extent your friendship isn't commoditizable at least in a traditional sense any of these things that can't, that aren't commoditizable and can't be sold on the market there's an obvious financial uh, impulse to try and get rid of those things or tell people they're bad, right? Because you'd rather have them spending their time on things that can be bought and sold. Yeah. Consume. Right. Get GDP. I saw you tweeted last night, or you retweeted somebody talking about, uh, <laughs> it's me on the right. Like, Oh, yeah, yeah. I retweeted somebody. So what's funny about that, and this is something I want to go back to when we do Cultural Revolution too. That photo is from the USSR. Really? Yeah, it's a bunch of guys. It's the, those were, uh, God, I forget the name of the organization, but it was like young Soviets or something like that. Yeah. So yeah, what Marty's referring to, and you can look at my Twitter. It's a photo. It's a retweet of somebody, uh, a right wing bodybuilder that I follow. Um, he said that's me on the right and just my boys marching to take down. Uh, I think it was like GDP maximalist slave labor system. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> that's what it is. Like, yeah. Absolutely, that's what it is. And that's yeah. How 
and that's something another thing we've been talking about on the side is like how permanent is this economic damage going to be like how like thinking of like the lower class the the working class right because the small I think businesses there's another misconception here that you know the people in charge would necessarily care about that and i don't know that they do anymore so long as they get a bigger piece of the smaller pie even if the pie shrinks you know what i mean like i, I they might be happy with that i'm not a i'm not jeff bezos or bill gates or mark zuckerberg so i don't know the answer to that question um, but I have my suspicion that that might be a okay, you know, the bigger piece of the smaller pie. Because not only potentially a bigger piece of a smaller pie, not only are you richer potentially, right? Depending on how much the pie shrinks and how much your share grows, some more influence. That was going to be my second part. Not only are you richer, but even if it was, let's say, wealth neutral for them, it certainly makes them more powerful. Um, so that's something I would definitely be concerned about in terms of reviewing everything that's going on with COVID right now and the level of information that we're getting. Because regardless of whether, I mean, you might be a physician or a, a biologist or a virologist listening to this podcast and you might disagree with everything that I have to say and that's fine. But regardless of your position, whether it, whether it corresponds to mine or not, they definitely are hiding information from us because it's out there if you go looking for it, right? Yeah. For instance, that the death rate figures and the, the sort of, which is admittedly artificial, um, line that you have, that 5% line that creates a pandemic or not, you haven't heard about that in the news, right? Like, they won't talk about that. You know, and something that we've talked about, too, is the... Uh excess of expected deaths it's fallen below right exactly that's the other thing i don't think i think barely anyone knows right now is that all-cause mortality for uh the last week i think believe it was the last week in june which is the last week for which they currently have data um it might have been the week before that's the most current week whatever it is you can look all-cause mortality is below what it was in prior years meaning even with covid uh, we have less deaths going on right now, meaning COVID has a negative, I mean, this is a little bit twisted, but a negative expected deaths. Now, reasons for that, to be honest, number one, people are driving less. All people forget how big auto accidents are as a cause of death. Um, so any additional COVID deaths have been overwhelmed by the reduce in auto deaths. And then also what's called the pull forward effect, where early on in the pandemic, particularly in New York, we were giving people horrendously bad care because we just didn't know people. They didn't know. I'm not blaming the doctors as individuals, but they were doing stuff like putting people on ventilators, which we know now actually makes them more likely to die in most circumstances. All this like horrible, horrible care combined with the fact that New York and New Jersey just essentially, I mean, just slaughtered their so, nursing yeah, home residents. They signed a death right, sentence. Right. Yeah. So those two things, what they did was they took a lot of people that would have died, let's say that week in June and they instead died in March or April, right? That's why it's called the pull forward effect. You're taking deaths from one period to another. But nonetheless, that is an important statistic regarding the death rate um, that is just not remotely talked about, right? Nothing's allowed to be spoken about except for the official narrative, right? Which is that this is getting out of control. And I'll give you one more example, and I won't harp on these sort of medical issues too much because I'm not a doctor, but the the... On the medical side, one of the things you're seeing right now in the past week are a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of news that's saying, you know, herd immunity is not achievable due to the fact that uh, antibody tests have shown such low seroprevalence throughout the throughout society. 
that's probably caused at least partially by the fact that we think now the antibodies probably only last about 8 to 12 weeks after you've been uh, infected. But what they don't talk about is with other coronaviruses, one of the main factors in immunity is not um, antibodies, but rather T-cell immunity, meaning every time you get affected, your immune system gets more efficient at eliminating the virus, meaning the second, third, fourth, fifth time your symptoms will be milder or maybe have none at all. You might just fight it off before you get any symptoms at all. Um, there are several preprints on point with regard to this, and preprints obviously haven't gone through peer review yet, but they're the best that we've got in a fast-moving pandemic. Peer review takes a lot of time. Um, that seem to indicate that there is pretty robust T-cell adaptation when you're infected by uh, SARS-2, the virus that causes covid uh, as well as good cross-reactivity with other coronaviruses. So the more actually people, this is a broad generalization, but that have inf been infected with the common cold multiple times uh, do get some cross-reactivity with SARS-2 because they're both, the, both the common cold viruses and SARS-2 are, are different types of coronaviruses. This is like important stuff, right, like that I'm talking about. And even if you think the official narrative is still correct, uh, you know, the, these are scientific facts that I'm giving you here, and they should at least be part of the conversation. And they're not. I mean, they're just shot down like you're a kook, uh, <laughs> right? you know, for for even bringing something up in that regard. Now, the positive thing is I think we're going to see in real time, you know, it appears that Texas and Arizona are basically doing the herd immunity thing, right? I mean, that seems to be what they're going to do. So we're going to see if their curve ends up matching the other countries that did herd immunity. Because, by the way, another thing that our media doesn't talk about is when we get compared to other countries, it never gets mentioned, number one, that our death rate is lower than all of Europe's other than Germany. Uh, like, people act like we're doing some terrible job here. That's just not true. We just, ours is still going and theirs isn't because they got theirs first. The same reason it's not still going in New York versus the South. New York got its surge first. Um, so that's that always gets left out. And then number two, numerous countries, not just Sweden, did some variation on herd immunity where they either did, Sweden did essentially nothing. Other countries in, the, uh, in Europe did a little bit or they had very, very short lockdowns, you know, et cetera. Numerous countries in Europe did little to no masking. Uh, that's another uh, that's another weird, uh, you know, just myth that's floating out there is that Americans are particularly resistant to masking europe your every country in europe is different uh but from just talking to people in europe and looking at the stats the u.s has done probably a better uh, more masking than europe has we've done less than asia but certainly more than europe and europe it seems in many in if you look at the countries that did nothing or next to nothing they had their huge spike and it burned out uh and then if you know, if you look at countries that did a lot but where it was probably way too late, which are, you know what I mean, to, to have had any effect, they sort of had that same pattern. But, and that's New York and New Jersey, too. New York and New Jersey did these ultra-strict lockdowns, but it was so late that it had, I, I, it seems unlikely that it had any effect. And nobody really talks about that. Like, two-thirds of the deaths happen within, like, the tri-state area here in America. Yeah, exactly. And people are going bonkers about Florida right now. Florida, this is a great stat. Florida has more people than New York State. Florida has an older population than New York State. They should have be in way worse situation. Florida has, last time I checked, this is going to be a little bit off when this goes to air, but it's roughly correct, about 3,500 deaths. I think I might air this right after we record. Okay. 
So roughly speaking, and I haven't checked it, checked it literally today, but Florida had like about 3,500 deaths and New York had like 35,000. So like, what are we talking about here? And how many of those were in nursing homes? Uh, in New York and New Jersey, it's about half. Yeah. Yeah. To the best of their knowledge, about half. Now, and that's with the fact that New Jersey went back. This is pretty shady, too, and got no media coverage. New Jersey went back and took several thousand nursing home deaths and reclassified them from COVID to something else. Really? Yeah, because they said there was no testing back then, so we can't be sure. Yeah, it was like 3,400 or something like that. Yeah, I don't remember the number that that was done. This was done back in, I think, May. New Jersey did that. Um, well, even started even New Jersey, that. it's like affecting North Jersey way more than it is down here. Yeah, like it is. It's weird how it's like confined up in the New York well, area. Well, like there's a density issue, and I, you know, I think it's very. Um, I think it's a really good hypothesis, at least, to believe that mass transit had a lot to do with that. Because it, what we do know is that the virus spreads most easily indoors, where there's no air circulation. And that's, I mean, think about how disgusting in terms of circulation and, and enclosed, enclosedness, that's not a word, but you get the point, the subway is. And people are on the subway for, I mean, you might be on the subway for half hour. You know what I mean? You're not in there for, it's not like an elevator where you're in there for five minutes or you're not even in, a, you're in an elevator for 90 seconds. You know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, you could be stuck between stops for a half hour sometimes on the exactly, subway. Exactly, right. And, and we know the disease is, is driven, uh, a lot or in large part by viral load so i mean you're just sort of stewing in viral load uh when you're talking about mass transit so these are all things that like don't fit the official narrative and that information just doesn't get out there it's not even discussed it's not even a matter of like oh people are discussing this and then there's a, there's a vigorous debate back and forth and the consensus in that vigorous debate in the media has been that everything that you and I are saying is wrong. No, it's been that this information is suppressed. And if you bring it up, the wild one is that I always get is like, if you bring it up, you just care about the market. And I'm like, man, you don't know. You certainly have not listened to anything that I've said <laughs> on whether it be a po an interview, a Twitter or whatever, because there's. Nothing I give a shit about less than the the market. I mean, I like to think that everything that uh, when I look at anything, I t my my goal is always how can we create a pro social environment, a society where people are happy, they like being around each other, it's calm. Like that's that's always been my thing. I'd, I've said many times I'd rather be poor and live in a society like that than live in a, than be wealthy and live in a society with violence and yawning inequality and people that don't get along with one another and don't view each other as neighbors and friends right so I, that's just not it at all and i i just i don't buy it at all into the stereotype that people that have serious apprehensions about the government's reaction to this whole pandemic fit that you know that sort of i don't care about society hyper individualist category because for me it's the total opposite my um Apprehension is driven entirely by the fact that I think that if we don't get this reaction under control, it could drive society in an inherently antisocial uh, direction to the benefit of, you know, the largest holders of capital in our society. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's heading that way. And it's it's been truly disgusting to watch the media throughout this. You just talk yeah. about like what you're allowed to talk about, what you're not allowed to talk about and socially shaming. And 
this whole thing's been fucking politicized. Like, yes. Like, everybody's going after Arizona, Texas, and Florida well, for I mean, being... Well, I mean, look, how many people have died because they didn't get hydroxychloroquine early on in their treatment because that was, like, considered politically bad, right? And now we know it's good again, by the way. Like, that's a whole other ball of wax. And again, I'm not a physician here, but the, you know, there was some early hope for hydroxychloroquine. I mean, based on stuff that I had seen as a non-physician, it seemed pretty obvious, like, you have to give it to people early or don't give it to them at all. Well, it's actually funny. My cousin has lupus, so she takes it every day. Yeah. And she went to her doctor. Doctor's like, nobody with lupus has gotten this. You literally have, you're taking viral medicine that protects you from Right, and the the physicians in New York all took it. Uh, when the as uh, they took it prophylactically, or uh, or I shouldn't say all, many of the physicians in New York took it prophylactically when they were treating COVID patients in the beginning. So you know we knew that it was basically a thing to to, to come out early. So what they did was they did a wild study where they way overdosed it. They they gave an almost lethal dose of hydroxychloroquine. It's because they mis they mistook mistook it for a different medicine, right? right? And they gave it to people who were the least likely to benefit, right? Who already who are, had severe symptoms. Like. Yeah, exactly. And who were, who were already hospitalized. Really, you should be giving it to people before they're even hospitalized, it seems. Again, not a doctor. but the And I knew this was kind of BS because one of the things I've been really lucky about throughout this whole pandemic in terms of keeping up with the news is, and I don't say this to like be a jerk or brag, I read three languages, right? English, Spanish, and Italian. Um, varying degrees. Italian, I need, a little, I need a dictionary with me. I need a little more help. But... Uh, than, than English or Spanish. And you get a lot less bullshit when, you're, when you read media that's in another language, I can tell you that, than you do when you read English language media. What do you mean? Is it uh, media? There's a lot, they'll just report like stuff that comes out. It, but like, is it like a, a Latin American perspective in America, or are they reporting down in Panama Stuff I've been reading like was from other countries. So okay. like, the hydro, like a lot of the hydroxychloroquine stuff I read was from Ecuador because they did a lot of early trials there. Um, and they're mo- the most promising paper out of Ecuador. I know this is going to sound stupid, but the most promising paper out of Ecuador was written in Spanish. It wasn't written in English. And one thing I found kind of with the research is this is stupid, but if you don't write your, your research paper in English, no one reads it. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't get anywhere. Um, so, you know, thing, that's one example of like, well, just to get back to the hydroxychloroquine thing, just to finish that really quickly. So it seemed for, by reading foreign language media and actually looking at the data, it seemed like that was obvious. But they instead ran this study that was like the worst design study you could imagine. And then we were, based on the results of that study, we were all supposed to say hydroxychloroquine was terrible. And if you even mentioned it, you should be shamed for putting people's lives at risk. And then, up, oh, lo and behold, what was it, this week or last week, they actually started giving it to people that uh, were not, like, on their deathbed, and they were not giving them, like, lethal doses of it, and it's working again. So now it's good again. You know what I mean? So, like, the whole thing is just so um, incredibly politicized. And one thing I want to touch on on the, the foreign language stuff, one of the, in terms of getting information about this virus, you know, quote-unquote weakening, which could be from mutation, I think it's, it's equally as likely, if not both factors contributing, that it's just in- increased T-cell immunity in the population as it burns through, was from reading stuff in Italian, just because they got it very early. Um, and I, there were just some interviews I read with scientists. And the, when I say scientists, these are not even just regular physicians. Uh, one of the ones I read recently was from the Negri Institute in Italy, which is like a giant pharmacolo- institute for pharmacological research. This is not just some... Joe Blow doctor 
And he was doing, he did basically an interview where he said, look, he said, first of all, the PCR testing, which is PCR testing for those that aren't aware, that's where they swab your nose or mouth, depending on the type of test you get. They put it in a machine that drastically oversimplifying the way PCR testing works here, but it, it amplifies the virus, right? Um, so that it becomes more detectable. And that's how they determine whether you're COVID positive or negative. And basically... They asked him, they were like, well, like in Italy, we, we're still getting all these cases, but people aren't really dying anymore. What's going on? And he's like, well, what's happening is the re and he didn't particularly ascribe this to either a mutation or to T cell immunity or to anything. But what he did say was these these infections that we're getting as time goes along, they're mild. Uh, they seem to be very mild. And the PCR test just amplifies the amount of virus that's picked up in the sample to such a degree that you're still going to test positive, but really these, these cases aren't anything to worry about because the viral load is so low that not only are they not symptomatic, but they probably can't spread at that level of a viral load. So this is really nothing to be worried about. That's that interview that I just sort of summarized for you. Like that's a big deal, right? That's like a, a major health researcher at a top institute in a country that was affected. Uh, well, I don't. We don't know how much China was affected, so let's put that aside. Of all the countries where we have a decent idea of the way a country was affected italy has dealt with this the hardest giving us some really interesting information there now that you probably didn't hear about that at all right i just heard about it for the first time yeah exactly right like that's kind of a big <laughs> deal in italian media i was like at least able to read that and say oh that's like really interesting this is something to consider when looking at the data looking at the numbers you know etc so that's been really interesting just the difference between reading Spanish and Italian language media versus English language media on this stuff. Well, I've been falling down the no agenda rabbit hole in the last couple months, and they've been doing an incredible job of just following the media here in America, and it's truly disgusting how they're framing all of this and politicizing all of it. And That's one thing Like I want. Well, people who have been following it and, and diving into uh, what the media has been saying and dissecting it and actually spending hours to to dive through this data understand that the media is i don't want to say lying but not telling the whole truth and like i i mean I, my confidence was blown on the media for a while but i wonder if like more and more people start distrusting the media or if it just pushes everybody towards this path of like npc like orange man bad i think it's going to be like a thing at the extremes where it's going it will push more people toward distrusting the media and at the same time will embolden and strengthen the impulses of those who are not pushed to reject the media um to trust the media right in other words so people that are into the new york times are going to be even more into it but a larger number of people are not are just going to not take it seriously at all. That would be my uh, my prediction. How much of the fact that this is an election year do you think has contributed to to all this? That's a great question, and uh, that's been sort of bandied about a lot, right? And I just I because you mentioned it earlier, like, yeah. Uh, we've actually like all things considered compared to other countries are doing a pretty good job yeah. in terms of death rate. Nobody mentions the amount of testing we're doing compared to everybody else. Way more than anybody but else. But everybody, like conversation. There, yeah. By the way, this is one, let me interrupt you. One thing to keep in mind here too, when you're looking at cases, a lot of countries in Europe stop testing. <laughs> like, like Norway doesn't test. Uh, there's a bunch of other, when I say don't test, they only test if you're like real sick. Right. 
Um, and that's even among states in the U.S. You have to consider that. I'll give you a, like a personal example. In New Jersey, like you can't get tested at almost any testing center I'm aware of without having either without having symptoms. Like if you fill out the little form online and you say you don't have symptoms, you can't get a test. Even the CVS testing in New Jersey, you can't do that. In Delaware, where I've been for the past several months, in Delaware, anybody can get tested. This, what Delaware did, the Delaware, all the testing is run by the state, the small state. So the state just bought a ton of tests. You don't even have to give your insurance. Like in New Jersey, like in most states, you have to give your insurance and your insurance covers it. But, you know, like whatever, you still have to give it and go through this whole rigmarole. In Delaware, anybody, it's all drive-through. Anybody can go through. Uh, it's the mouth swab. You don't have to have symptoms. You just, you just do it, right? So obviously, there's going to be a big difference in cases that you detect, even between Delaware and New Jersey, with when one of those states is saying, like, no, we're only testing people that have symptoms. And another state says, like, anybody can get tested. So if you were even, like, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, my nephew is in school. And one of the teachers had COVID, super mild. Her biggest symptom was a headache, and it didn't spread to anybody, like any of the kids, none of the other teachers, nothing. But I was like, well, whatever. It takes me 15 minutes to drive through and get tested. I'll just drive through the – the because I was exposed to my nephew. I just drove through the drive through in Delaware, and I got tested. If I were in New Jersey, that never would have happened because I didn't have any symptoms, right? So that's a, an example of, like, why it's – Hard to compare apples to apples, even among states, let alone countries, when their testing policies are so different. Yeah, but Donald Trump has killed hundreds of thousands of Americans. It's and, and, it's and his fault. Yeah, and I'm sure that's part of the narrative as well. Like, which, with regardless of what you think of the federal response, or if they're even, you know, well, this is what I hate about it because I find myself having to defend Trump. Yeah, and like I'm, you know me, I'm not, I don't like You're any. Not political, right? I'm not political. Yeah, I've been driven to become more political because of all this. Because again, like I find myself having to stand up for him. Like, hey, number one, how do you control a fucking virus? Yeah, like this is something you can't see. Like, and everybody goes like, oh, he fired the uh, the pandemic response team. That's the number one response. And then two, it's like, is he really doing a bad job? Like the the. Initial estimates for like two million people would die. In well, the here's States. the bigger issue, and this is a part of why we don't get real information, and people are hesitant to talk about the truth here too. Um, it's possible if what you and I believe, and I'm not sure of this because I'm not sure yet because I'm not a doctor, and this whole thing isn't over yet. But you and I have some level of belief that the virus, no matter what you do, you have a spike and it burns out, right? And you might need to control the amplitude of your spike depending on what your hospital capacity is, but that's sort of what that's that's that, that's where we're headed here regardless of whether that's right or wrong the problem with discussing that is if you even entertain that uh or and it turns out to be true let's say that's discussed and entertained and it, it does turn out to be true no one including you and me likes to hear that our job just didn't matter in that case and essentially what you're saying is like public health people it didn't matter what the hell you did what was going to happen is what's going to happen and that's not – I don't say that as a knock on public health people. That just may – and I, I'm not saying is, but may be the reality here that whatever we did in terms of public health, it just wasn't going to matter and that this was – it was what it was. It burned through and that happened. And that doesn't mean public – these people are – their research is invalid or that they're idiots or anything like that. It's just – hell, it happens to the best of us. But no one likes to feel useless. It's an act of so, God. It's exactly. Like, like... So I, there is going to be a – even if you and I are right – 
there's going to be a that's not the story that's going to be told. It's going to be that we saved the day by doing X, Y, and Z. And it might the thing that they may attribute this all to is actually masks, which is kind of wild because it doesn't. I mean, I'm not saying that masks do nothing, but if you're not distancing, they don't do very much. And if you like, if you're packed protesting ten thousand people shoulder to shoulder, I don't know how much you know the virus is still getting in and around there. So. The, the bottom line is, that's another thing you got to consider here is like in terms of not only could it be political in terms of partisan voting type politics, but political in that, you know, if you're in public health, you don't want people to draw the conclusion unfairly even that your job is pointless and, you know, nothing we do in that regard matters. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah. no, it totally makes sense. But even with that being said, I think this whole ordeal has proven that some public health institutions like the world health organization and the cdc oh yeah are very political yeah very political world health organization especially right like i mean just based i mean hell based on the fact that taiwan's not allowed to be in it right yeah so oh we'll get to that later china's trying to hong kong taiwan right now yes they are Uh, before we get there though um well you had another tweet where you're calling out experts and yeah that, was a retweet. yeah, that yeah. was a retweet. So that was a retweet from, uh, I think that was, and this kind of ties very much into what I was saying about not wanting to admit that you, you're wrong. If you could take that idea that I just took a step further, and that was a retweet from Amy Therese, who said, like, you have to understand, like, in the status quo, the role of experts is to preserve the status quo. So if the status quo sucks, the experts have to suck because they have to, you know, maintain that sort of status quo and that's part of this here too right i mean we i just gave a million different motivations that our experts might that that why well, actually not our experts that our people in charge might have for wanting to make the pandemic out worse than it is which we just spent the whole beginning of the podcast talking about and if you want that message to get across you by definition need experts that are going to amplify that message you know what i mean and that's and that's what it goes to a larger point that I made about technocracy, I, you know, in my own tweet, which was like when people vote against technocracy, they're not they're not. The first thing that always comes up is that Mike Judge movie, Idiocracy. I freaking hate that movie because it actually draws all the wrong conclusions about everything that's that's going on. They're not the idiots that, that are running the show in Idiocracy. The idiots are the technocrats. You know what I mean? They're the ones putting on the circus you know, for the people in charge. And when people vote against technocracy, they're actually voting against that. This entire thing is entirely backwards. It's bizarre to make the allegation that we live in a society where experts don't have enough power. That's insane. Like, and that's sort of the point of the movie, or at least the point that people make when they constantly refer back to that movie. Um, so that, I'm sorry, that movie is like a big trigger point for me. Cause like as a populist, right? Like, you know, above above all else, I kind of consider myself a populist, and as a populist, I'm like that movie is literally just made to look to make populists look like morons. Like yeah. that's the point of it. I've never thought of it that way. It is true though. Yeah, yeah. like everybody, they're looking for experts, or they yeah. need experts. Where even the the opening scenes of that movie, there's a little infographic. The way they explain that we somehow got to idiocracy 
was that, oh, these like well-educated, successful people ha- decided to have less children. And it was only the dumb proles that kept, that kept breeding. And that's how we ended up with this moron society. And it's like, F you, man. Like, you yeah. know, like... Th- uh, that's some eugenics shit right yeah, there. Yeah, like, yeah, that's horrible. Like, it's, I don't know. I get why the movie has become popular specifically in the past decade among a certain set, but it's not good. Make, I get mad about it. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a while. But no, it, I mean it comes up all the time. Yeah, and yeah, it's like who can we trust these days? Like, it's it's getting weird. It's getting weird. Like with the the protests going on, and you know, so the cultural aspect of it all too. It's yeah, it's like that popped up. Obviously, George Floyd's murder was the impetus for for this flare-up but like how how much did the lockdowns before that contribute to the overall vitriol that we've seen that's a really important point right and are the two things combined on some level right were they were they both were they both uh exacerbated or inflamed jointly and together to to produce a desired result yeah before we get onto the cultural stuff i did have one thing that I just remembered, like with all, all the censorship that's going on, uh, with information that's gone against the narrative, like YouTube taking down the video of those two doctors. Yes. Yeah. Um, who were physicians, like not cons- like, uh, you know, one was from Stanford, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, and th- so that again, tinfoil hat back on, like, are they conditioning us? Like, no, don't like Susan Wojcicki coming out, like only world health organization information will get on. Like if you're telling people to, take vitamin C, we're going to take you off. Well, and right. And, you know, the, by the way, just yesterday, and I don't know if you caught this because this, ten, this tended to be more circulating around, like, left Twitter. So, like, I have, like, an interesting Twitter profile in that uh, sort of like this intersection of people across a very broad political spectrum, as we talked about on the last episode, because I kind of take a lot of my influences predominantly from distributism and if if you're interested in that you should go back and listen to the first two episodes i did with marty but also like i take a lot of class analysis from aspects of marxism and things like that and uh so in left twitter there a big deal has been made i don't know if you saw this so it's the first part you probably did say did see jk rowling made some com made her gave, gave an opinion on transgendered people and her opinion was basically that she worries with kids that oftentimes kids who might be gay are sort of shunted towards believing that they're not just gay that they're transgendered and that they get irreversible hormones or whatever the case might be her opinion really wasn't necessarily relevant to this discussion so that came out and of course like people just went ballistic about that right like how can you let her write these things how can twitter allow this to be tweeted Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So there was a uh, a counter reaction to that, and I don't know if you saw this part. Did you see the open letter in Harper's? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Harp the, the left is eating itself. Right. So in Harper's published, uh, and this goes to the cultural stuff, which we'll talk about in a bit. But Harper's published an open letter, which was like the most inoffensive thing in the world, that basically said, like, you know, society is better if we have like a spirit of open speech, open debate. Etc. Etc. It even went out of its way to bash conservatives to try and like eliminate any particular to placate the to play right exactly to say because the point that they made was like oh if we don't allow free speech and open debate the right wins you know what I mean like that was 
That was the point. And I kind of get why they did that, because they didn't want to get pigeonholed as like some sort of a right-wing thing, right? This letter... But you had Matthew Iglesias sign it, Noam Chomsky. That's like, what's so funny. So they're, can- they're canceling now. This is Think about how bananas this is. They're canceling Chomsky for supporting free speech, which is wild on so many different levels. First of all, he's 92, and he's been, he, he's been whatever you think of his other stuff, a lot of people that listen to this podcast are going to have a negative impression of him because of the things he said about Rothbard, of course. But I think he's made some good points about free speech. Right, and manufacturing consent and all that, and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, Chomsky is a libertarian and I'm not, so it, I'm not necessarily aligned with his views, but he's 92 and he's been promoting free speech for longer than I've been alive. He's been writing about these issues. How are you people possibly shocked and awed and horrified by the fact that he signed this totally inoffensive letter? Somebody described the letter as milk toast. It was, it was, it, it, it actually wasn't nearly strongly worded enough. It was actually too mild. That was the problem with it. And they're just going ballistic on Chomsky. I mean, the other one that people are like, Salman Rushdie signed it. I mean, you're younger. So do you know who Salman Rushdie is? Uh, not off the top of my head. Okay, so it was a big deal when I was younger. Salman Rushdie uh, is a, a British writer. Um, he's, I forgot, now I'm bad. He's Muslim. I forget if he's from India or Pakistan. Please forgive me. But uh, he's British and wrote a, a book called The Satanic Verses, which had some imagery in it that was found to be offensive to Islam. He had a uh, fatwa put on his head, so he had to live in secrecy for a long time. He lives in public now again, I believe. The, the fatwa has been rescinded, but that's like relatively recent, maybe the past 10 years. Um, he was living in hiding like forever. By the way, if, if, you, if, you, uh, if you're a Curb Your Enthusiasm fan, not this season, but the season before, Larry, I think, puts on a musical about Salman Rushdie. I think Rushdie's in, in one of the episodes, too. Yeah. Anyway, like, how are you surprised that that guy supports free speech? A guy who's been had to live in secrecy for years because of stuff that he published. Like, obviously, these people are going to support that. It's, it's, uh, it's wild, the degree to which they're, um, they're coming for it. And I, there's an article, and you can, if you want to link to it, you can check my Twitter. I've, I tweeted it, I think, yesterday. Um, by Freddie DeBoer, who basically said, like, well, if you're mad about this letter, then just come out and say, like, I support censorship because I think I'm going to be the one that gets to do the censoring. And that's just my position. Right. Like, stop the whole stop the whole charade. Yeah. Yeah, Well, perfect transition to the cultural stuff. It feels like people are trying to be bring like malice china to america like the there is a ton of effort to subvert a certain type of way of thinking free and open thinking and to subvert just open debate in general like if you and it's actually i've been saying this on on side channels too like the organization black lives matter and you're speaking specifically about the ngo yes like it is honestly one of the the best Marxist psyops that's ever existed. Like hide behind that mantra, black lives matter, which is obviously true. Like if you deny that you're, you're an imbecile, a fucking terrible person, but use it to push Marxist ideas on the country and and frame a narrative where if you're not on our side, you're a racist. And the word racism and racist is sort of losing its meaning throughout all this. But 
everybody's getting canceled. So talking about the cultural side, the last two months, particularly the cultural uh, sort of uh, enforcement of law, if you will, has been much stronger than political uh, yeah. enforcement. Oh, of law. yeah. Way it's been stronger. crazy to see. And Way stronger. Woke Capital's been, been on revved fire. up. So th- this is a really fascinating topic that I have a lot to say about. And I think you have to look at it from a class perspective, each class's interest in this cultural revolution. And I'm going to kind of take it sort of, uh, sort of class by class here because I think that's honestly the best way to understand what's going on. Um, and then I think that's going to lead us to a larger discussion about what you actually mean when you say the word Marxism because that's, that's a very interesting discussion as well. Um, so... I say Marxism. I don't, necessarily, I don't necessarily mean what you mean. I mean what society, what, what yeah. people mean in general. And yeah. To preface it, I'm only saying Marxism because they say it, right? the two co-founders have come yes. out and said in fact, they are trained they, Marxists. They, they made it. That's a that I love that statement because it's like I'm a trained Marxist. Marxism is just a uh, a method by which you can analyze capitalist society. That's all it is. So saying you're a trained Marxist is just. It's bizarre. It would be like you saying, I'm a trained Austrian. You know, like, it, it's odd. It doesn't really... We'll get to that, though. Okay? If you look at it in an orthodox way, that's just sort of an odd thing to say. So, the... the let's, start, let's, let's start with what's going on here. The, I think the key piece that you have to understand, there's a, there's a Russian-American scholar. He teaches, I think, at University of Connecticut, named Peter Turchin, um, who predicted all this quite a while back. Um, he has this theory called elite oversupply, okay? And elite oversupply essentially means that you have a lot of tumult and problems in a society when you produce too many elites and have too few positions for those elite parties because they have to fight, right? And because they're elite, they, they have the ability to sort of drag a lot of other people into their stupid jockeying and fights and things like this. He predicted, amazingly, specifically, that the 2020s were when this was all going to come to fore, and he predicted that based on the fact that we so drastically expanded higher education back in the 90s, that we would never be able to... These people would be graduating with degrees, feeling that they're entitled to a position within what I'm going to call, for purposes of this discussion, the professional managerial class, right? Elite is a little too broad, because does elite mean Bezos, or does it mean, like, some guy that works you know, in HR for Amazon, right? They're, on some level, they're both elite. One of those, the HR worker in my example, is sort of professional managerial class, right? So these people all graduated college and they think that this is something that they're entitled to and they're getting out there and they're finding out that there aren't enough jobs that pay enough in that regard, right? Even if they can get one of these PMC jobs, well, the cost of maintaining a PMC lifestyle has gone up, like private school for your kids, college for your kids, if you want to be in a country club, the fancy house, or if, you, or if you're an urbanite and you want the apartment in, in Manhattan, like this has all gotten a lot more expensive and that PMC lifestyle is sort of getting out of reach because they, we just have the supply and demand of jobs for these people is such that the jobs are either hard to get or if they're not hard to get, though the pay is too low, right? So you have a group of people that feel like they've been slighted, okay, um, because of this <clears throat> elite overproduction. How does this manifest itself? Number one, <clears throat> excuse me, and everything I'm about to talk about and how these people manifest it, a lot of this is 
not necessarily conscious. A lot of this is subconscious, right? But they, they, they feel like they've done everything right. They went to school. They worked hard. They did all this. They do not want to feel like they are a part of the working class, right? That's like the last thing they want. And if they can't financially distinguish themselves from the working class, if that's becoming harder and harder to do, <clears throat> one thing that they're going to do is they will start trying to culturally distinguish themselves from the working class. And one very convenient way to do that is to adopt just wilder and wilder, for lack of a better term, cultural positions that your average working class person is going to find weird. Like distaste, maybe distasteful, maybe disgusting, or maybe just plain weird, um, because that provides some distance between you and those other people, and provides a sense of superiority, right? In other words, I'm not like you're seeing this play out on Instagram so hard, right? I'm not like these other, you know, I might not be rich. But I'm still not like these other bad people that have these beliefs. I have my beliefs, which make me superior. So that's one part of it. That's the emotional rather than material part of it, okay, that, that you're seeing going on with what's really driving this very hard right now. Because the, as we're going to find out, the driver of this cultural revolution is the professional managerial class. It's funded and manipulated sort of by the haute bourgeoisie for their own interests. And the uh, working class gets screwed. And the lumpen proletariat gets used as pawns. So we're going to address all, uh, all parts of this. So that's how the PMCs on an emotional level. On a material level, the, <clears throat> these belief systems are a way to get the old guard of, out of their PMC jobs to free up more slots. Right? Because you could say, like... Uh, some management oh god i don't even remember where he's working right now do you remember like a couple weeks ago there was a guy that had to step down from an executive role and i can't remember the corporation right now but because he's a veteran and in 1987 he wrote an opinion piece just opposing women in combat do you know what i'm talking i forget where i he remember worked. the story i forget exactly where he worked too i forget where the guy worked but like that's an example right like that got rid of him so some new guy with that's that holds all the new beliefs got his spot, right? So it's also a way they sort of weaponize these beliefs in order to get the old guard out of the way so That's that they can get their That's disgusting that they'll go back 20, 33 years. It's there's, uh, there's actually, did you ever watch, it's been off the air maybe two or three years now, there was a show on FX, it's a, it's a, it was a dark comedy called, uh, uh, well, You're the Worst. I think I caught a couple episodes. Okay, it. it was like a. It was interesting because it was a. It was a romantic comedy, but a dark romantic comedy. That's not a not a uh, <clears throat> a combo that you see all that much, right? So there's actually an episode where the female lead in the show, Gretchen, me too's her boss solely. So she's portrayed in the show oftentimes as being basically amoral, um, just solely because she just wanted his job. So like that's the gag on the show. She just. She me-tooed her boss for absolutely no reason, made up the story. He gets fired. She gets the job. The office calls her a hero, and she just goes about business like this is a normal way of advancing up the corporate ladder in you – know, that, that was probably in 2018 or 2017, right, that that show was made. <clears throat> and that's a lot of what's going on right now too. Not only are you forcing out the old guard, but you're forcing these corporations to make even new positions 
centered around, you know, you need a chief diversity officer. You need more HR people to train you in this new well, how about system. What's going on in Seattle? Just right. Yes. So that, yeah, there's an example, right? That there's consultants that actually teach all this stuff to, you know, private and public employers. So they've, this is a way well, in Seattle, but this is where like they're dividing people, right? Cause in Seattle, well, we're going to get there. Okay. That's, okay. that's a separate part of this, but yeah, uh, right now I'm just talking about from the perspective of the PMC. So from the PMC's perspective, you've created this, it's a jobs creation program for them, right? Both by forcing out old people from existing jobs and creating new jobs. It, it is a way of creating more of solving that sort of elite overproduction issue on some level for them. So that that's from their end why this is going on now. So they create this. Why are we seeing and this is going to go to the point you just made? Why are we seeing, for lack of a better term, the hope bourgeoisie, right? The, the wealthiest of the wealthiest, the Bezos the Zuckerbergs, uh, Tim Cook at Apple. Why are we seeing all of these people? So not just accepting it or making just the bare minimum overtures toward it. This has been a lot different. Like this is not 1968 where like there was a certain level of acceptance as to what was going on. But like people weren't going out of their way to promote it. But that's not what we're seeing now. Right. Like we're seeing just out and out blatant promotion of this cultural revolution. Why would we do that? Well, I mean, they see this. People in that position just sort of recognize cultural trends and they pick and choose the ones that are most beneficial to them in terms of going forward. And that comes into the whole division thing, right? From the perspective of the people at the top of society like that, it's very beneficial if you can divide people uh, based upon class and rate, excuse me, based on racial lines or cultural lines rather than class lines, right? And the reason for that is, especially in the United States where we have an ingrained institutionalized two-party system you can have those two parties differentiate differentiate each other on class that's bad for them right because sometimes the working class party is going to win if you had that and they're going to institute stuff that effectively is going to get more money for their their patrons um their constituents you know what i mean which is by definition bad for the people at the very top right creates a more even distribution which is what they don't want. So, whereas on the other side, if you inflame racial, cultural tensions to such a degree that the differentiating factor between the two parties isn't really class, but is more so like, hey, like I got to protect either other people of my ethnicity or I have to protect like the fact that I'm like allowed to have a family or like, you know, like basic either racial or cultural issues like that then they can just keep doing whatever they want with the economic side, with the political economy. And they create a country that is more akin to India, let's say, right? Where, or, or, or even if you want to take it a step further to Lebanon, right? You know what I mean? Something like that, where that's the way that the political system rotates around those racial uh, cultural issues. And that's why not only do they support it, but they fund the hell out of this stuff. You know, they... Uh, you know, you talked about Black Lives Matter and like you, I'm just going to make clear that I'm not talking about everyone that says that slogan. I'm talking about the actual formal incorporated organization, the NGO. I mean, that was founded with a hundred million dollars from the Ford Foundation, right? Like the Ford Foundation is not funding uh, any organization that is going to promote things uh, against its own, against its own interests. 
right? right? Like that's not against the interests of you know wealthy people. That just doesn't happen. So that's where why on that level you're seeing this. And this gets to your point when you mentioned the term Marxist, right? There's been a long-term project throughout the West and now throughout the globe now that there is no more there is no more second world there is no more warsaw pact or soviet union um to create a situation where <clears throat> you want to move leftism toward these cultural issues for the reasons i just gave you want to focus on oppression based on culture or race or whatever the case sexual orientation whatever it doesn't matter anything other than class so what you'll find is people that are in these organizations will say things like, I am a trained Marxist, right? But if you like had a gun to their head and you could get an honest answer about what they would prefer to do, enforce their like deranged, crazy uh, cultural agenda or like in- ensure the material security of everybody in the world, they would choose the former. Uh, absolutely. 100%. They would absolutely choose the former in this situation because the type of people that would choose the latter, and there are people that exist, obviously, that would choose the latter. They're not the ones that are going to get funded, right? Like that's, right. It's just, that's just the matter of how this works. So it's all, it's all just a ridiculous show, and this has been going on in the U.S. since the 60s, right? I mean, there's, a, there's an old uh, Saturday Evening Post article by a... Uh, CIA agent. It was written in 67 or 68, and the guy's name is escaping me right now, where he actually talks about this. He's like, yeah, we funded all these different leftist organizations to try and move things in the direction that we wanted to uh, during that time, and that's all sort of coming to roost now, right? It's it's not even necessarily the government that's doing this anymore. It's it's private enterprise, but it's the same, the same sort of concept. Yeah, and I saw a Sam Hyde clip the other day. Um, and he made a really good point, like just heuristically, like if all these corporations are, are behind this, you know, you're not a part of a real revolution or. Yeah, right. It's, that, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not even to say that, pe- that, there are, that, that there aren't people that are tweeting about this stuff that don't have real concerns, but you're you're in some weird, you know, like I, it's not even a controlled opposition. It's a controlled. Uh, it's a cr- controlled takeover. Yeah, I guess. Right. It's just a it's just this oddball thing. And one of the most <clears throat> disconcerting parts about it, by the way, this is a little bit of a sidetrack before we before I get to sort of analyzing this from the perspective of the working class and even like the lumpen proletariat is like one of the funny like side like things about this is like we're getting propagandized. Right. Really, really hard. Right. Um, and part of that is for all the reasons I just gave. And part of it is because, and this goes to a little bit of the face masking discussion, they're year zeroing us too. They're using this to year zero us, meaning getting rid of our history, our customs in this in this country, our our culture, you know, anything like that. It makes sense to get rid of that. Why? Because when you unmoor people from those things, they become better consumers, right? Like if you if you destroy one of the, the side effects of destroying, say, the nuclear family, is like the, the nuclear family in today's times is actually not really a commercial, uh, primarily a commercial relationship, at least as compared to other relationships you might be in, right? You care for your family not because they pay you. You care for your family because they're your family, right? So the more you can break down people's families, you break down their sense of history, anything that can't be commoditized, they replace that with things that can be commoditized. You know, So there's another, there's a huge benefit 
in year zeroing people in that regard. Um, and I think that's part of this as well. And one of the more interesting parts about this year zero, sort of this year zero psyop, if you want to call it that, is in the Warsaw Pact, this was done, right? You, you, what, particularly, actually, forget the Warsaw Pact in general, the USSR. The USSR, not for capitalist reasons, but wanted to eliminate the individual <coughs> cultures of the individual constituent republics, right? They didn't want you to be, they wanted you to be a Soviet rather than a Turkmen or a Kazakh or a Ukrainian or a Russian <coughs> or whatever. They, they wanted that unified Soviet identity. So they propagandized too, of course, right? But at least they got their propaganda, one of the things that's, that's interesting about the current propaganda is their propaganda, even though it was all bullshit, was still at least, it was not dysgenic. It was aesthetic and it was pleasant, right? Like, look at, are you familiar with the new Soviet man? Uh, no. Okay, so it was a major piece of propaganda throughout the entire history of the Soviet Union the idea was to create this identity of a man, again, who was not like, you know, a Kazakh or a Turkmen or Ukrainian or whatever, but were Russian even, but was a Soviet, right? But when they wanted to create this identity, they held him up as this just like, they tried to make it out like the coolest thing in the world. The, the new Soviet man was always muscular and he worked hard and he took care of his family and he engaged in self-sacrifice for the good of his people. Like it was this... Very, like, if you looked at it detached from what you know of the history of the Soviet Union, you would say, like, hey, I, this is, like, a really, this is kind of, like, a neat thing. I, I could, you would say, I could understand why people would be so into this. Admirable. Yes, parts of it were admirable. Again, <clears throat> I'm not saying it wasn't all bullshit, but at least the propaganda was trying to propagandize something admirable. And not dysgenic and gross and terrible. So much of what we get now, like in our propaganda, is actually like the opposite. It's dysgenic and disgusting, whether it's like uh, the acceptance of clearly unhealthy lifestyles, like morbid obesity. Yeah, like the Calvin Klein poster is a perfect <laughs> right, example. Right, like stuff like that. Like, it's like Jesus, this is a side point, but like Jesus Christ, if you're going to propagandize us, at least make it pleasant. Right. You know, like, it, 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 like why do they have to make it? Like, what kind of hellscape are we moving So towards? damn unpleasant. And I have a, a theory about this, by the way, as to why they, it doesn't have to be pleasant anymore. In the Cold War, on both sides, you had to make your system look like rad because you had to be afraid of defectors. Like defecting was like a real thing and it really did hurt when you had a lot of it going on. Um, wild story, Some, a guy I know, we didn't grow up together, he didn't grow up in this part of the country, but the guy, he's like, he's a few years older than me, but not much, like four or five. Kitty sat next to a middle school, didn't show up for school one day. And they just kept didn't showing up for school. And then he read in the paper that the kids' parents, they were apparently scientists, defected to the USSR. And this was in the Whoa. this was in like in the late eighties, yeah. So like this was like a thing that happened. You didn't want people doing that, right? You didn't want people working because we we both had you know if you watch a TV show the if you're younger you can watch the TV show The Americans to get a feel for what things were like in the eighties and this was it wasn't even just the eighties I mean it was sixties fifties this has been going on all along I mean these countries really did have agents in each other's countries trying to you know infiltrate to promote their own system in that country right the Soviets were doing it here to try. <clears throat> to move the U.S. toward communism, and we were doing it in the USSR to try and move the USSR toward liberalism, right? So you you didn't want that. So you had to, like, at least make it look good, even if it was bullshit, right? You didn't want it to look like this 
awful, like, dysgenic, unpleasing thing, right? You couldn't get away with that back then. But now there's no USSR anymore, right? Our only main systemic enemy is China. And, like, no one really wants... China isn't really trying to force their system on the U.S. They just want their... They have different goals, right? Like, they, they just want their system to thrive in their part of the world and for them to be successful with it. At least that's my reading of the China situation. I don't think... You know, when they try to steal secrets from the U.S., I don't think they are trying to promote communism here, per se. I just don't think they care um, one way or the other. That's just my reading. Maybe I'm wrong. But regardless of whether I'm right or wrong about that, we don't at least perceive in the U.S. to be a major threat of native-born Americans, like, you know, uh, being traitors to China. That's not really a thing that we've seen the way that we saw during the Cold War. Yes, we have. We have. The Harvard professor. Like, all these professors throughout. All right. You're right. You actually, you know what? You're right on that point. I still will hold that whatever the situation might be, the pressure is not as, as as intense as when the USSR was around, and that's why we can we can get away with this. China is not as much of a threat. I, I have a lot of problems with China. It is a different, not not as much as not the right word. It's a different kind of threat because we cooperate economically with China in a way we did not with the USSR. I don't think we should. I think we I don't should. think we should either. That's a different yeah. discussion. I don't think we should be either. But when you have that economic cooperation, it allows this sort of... Well, I think it, it allows that infiltration to be more successful. Yeah. Okay. All right. Potentially. We'll, we'll put a pin in, in, yeah. in my theory as to why that happened. Next podcast, we'll, we'll expand We'll on talk that. about that. Or the next podcast or later, this one, we can talk about that more. But my point still stands about the type of... Prop- for whatever the reason, the type of propaganda that we're getting as opposed to what we got in the old days. American propaganda, same deal. was always to make American history look great. It was to make everything look, look fantastic. There's... Uh, if you're ever in the mood for just what, to take a look at something dumb and slapstick that'll very quickly brighten your day, there's this... Um, it's, there th- it's a three-panel comic strip that ran in the Hungarian People's Republic, which was the communist... Hungarian Republic uh, that ran from the 40s all the way up until 89, right? It ran, of course, in the only official humor magazine that was allowed in Hungary because, you know, that's how the Warsaw Pact nations worked, um, called Jusica. And it's this just silly, slapstick, funny little comic, and there's a Twitter account that tweets out one of the panels every day because it ran for, like, uh, 15 years, I think, in the 50s and 60s. It ran for, like, a really, really long time. It was very popular. And obviously, like everything that was running in an official state publication, I'm sure this thing was propaganda, right? But, like, look at it. If you look at it, the the protagonist is, like, this hot, like, 60s modern girl who's, like, going out on all these, like, dumb adventures and has a million boyfriends and is, like, doing all this fun stuff and getting into kooky situations. Like, at least that was, like, interesting, right? It was designed to make Hungary look good, right? Like, I, like I'm sure it was bullshit, but it was designed to make you feel good about living in Hungary at the time. Like, you were living in a modern, fun society. And we're getting, like... I think that's just an interesting, as an aside, how propaganda's changed since, like, I was a kid to now. Yeah, like, what... The future that the left and the mob and those who want to push this cultural revolution are pushing looks terrible. Right, exactly. Now, I will say... but. Which is why I think it's important, and I'm going to finish up my little class analysis here thing. 
why I think it's important to look at it through a class lens because you can understand why it's happening. If you weren't looking at it through a class lens, I think it could be very confusing. As in, like, why would these people push just such an unpleasant, disgusting ideology? They, this can't make them happy. But I think, like, if you understand aspects of it, like, say, the elite overproduction theory, right? Like, that you could see why the motivation would come into play here. Yeah, like, is it is it all ego? Like, I need to, I, I, I think, need to justify my degree and my my perceived eliteness. Or? Well, like I said, I think there's the two parts to it. There's the emotional side, which what you're calling the ego side, and there's the material side. Um, there's always a material side, you know, it, uh, that that's involved in in these sort of in any sort of movement like this. So I think it is material as well. And then from the side of the people that are funding it, the real elites, you know, the people above the PMCs, on that side, it's entirely material. Right. For the reasons I just gave the year zeroing to make better consumers, plus the dividing people to prevent class based politics going on. Um, those are all material needs. Now, the interesting part about this is, is there a point where the people at the top pull the plug because it's gotten a little beyond what they're willing to tolerate? You yeah, know like the I Harper's mean? letters, maybe like the first. I don't know. I don't know that anybody in that, that wrote that signed that Harper's letter is like important enough. Mm -hmm. You know, it's got to be like. But yeah. it's a sign that, like, even some people on the left are riding the ship or, like, Whoa, yeah, but, like, what they, are we doing? That's true, but I don't think they matter. It's it's more so, like, the, 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 the very wealthy people that finance this stuff and, like, that promote it. Like, is Apple going to keep promoting all this stuff once it gets a little too far? Like, where do they pull the plug? You know, because Apple did a lot of promotion for all this stuff. Um, There's a lot of violence, Are, are the moneyed NGOs eventually going to dial back? If it gets too far out of hand are the corporate donations eventually going to dial. I, I don't know where that line is. I truly don't. Well, can they like, well, they can, I mean, they can pull back, they can pull back the financial end. They can't get rid of the movement per se, but what they can do is they can redirect its energy somewhere else. And I'll give you a concrete example of something they could do. And I'm not saying they'll do this. They may run with this cultural thing for a while longer. Um, but they could pull the plug on this and redirect everything towards climate change, say, instead, right? Which, regardless yeah. of whether you think of that as a topic, that is an, another cultural, another movement that can be easily used to make them richer, to, to use just sort of crass, basic terms here. You know what I mean? And it, it's a movement that fits all of the requirements I just gave. It helps the PMCs feel morally superior. It gives them justification to maybe get rid of some of their old bosses for their, you know, your company's not doing enough for the environment. And it's very easily, we know, obviously, environmentalism is very easily manipulable to use against working class people to the benefit of their employers, right? I mean, that's, that's an obvious one. We've, that's not even, it's almost tautological or something at this point that, that, that that's how uh, climate change works. So we'll come November if Trump wins again. I think that'll be the shift. Right? Yeah, that's possible. They, you know, I knew a lot of people that before the before the a lot of really smart people that I respect that before the uh, Floyd protests began thought that that's what was going to happen. That COVID, that after COVID settled down and whatever, whether Trump won or lost or whatever, uh, that they would make the shift to climate. Because it seemed in the beginning of the whole COVID thing that the identity stuff was dying down. Like, there, we actually got a little break from that for a little while. Um, so they thought that that was going to be the shift. Now, that still might happen further down the line. We just don't really know. Or maybe they got something new. Who the hell knows? Right. Uh, that's that's going to... 
that's going to sort of bubble up through the professional managerial class and be recognized by the people on top as being, you know, beneficial, something they want to support, something that they would rather energies be directed in for a class thing. Worth noting, by the way, um, Black Lives Matter, right? This time, this big surge, let's say, in Black Lives Matter um, popped up right, right after the economy... Uh, for working class people at least tanked due to coronavirus right this this time when was the last time it flared up big time right after occupy wall street so you could make the argument that these flare-ups are timed pretty well to drown out class-based movements right because whatever regardless of whatever you thought of occupy wall street it was a class-based movement and you and there definitely you could see in the wake of covid a class-based movement started bubbling up because you had a situation where the effects of the of both the virus and the, and the reaction against the virus by governments was very uneven on a class basis. Yeah, the Jim Cramer meme, the Nasdaq at all-time highs, twenty-one million. Unemployed. Yeah, right. So you know, there there's I can't prove that, but the timing is sort of interesting there. It's very in how, interesting in how this. Uh, in how this works, so I, I think there's there's probably something there and. The rioting after George Floyd's death seemed very coordinated. Like, yeah, it certainly did. Right? Like why were people in Sioux Falls, in South Dakota? Like, why? Correct. Are, why? There were a lot of riots that were not covered by the media at all. And you know, you follow Michael Tracy right online. Yeah, I love Michael Tracy. Yeah, yeah. Michael, so, I'm trying to get you on the podcast for listening. Yeah, answer my emails. That's another one where, like, you got if. If you get if you get MT on, I definitely want to be involved in that in some capacity, <laughs> one way or the other. I love that guy. He's in Jersey too. He's yeah, Jersey I fucking DM him. I was like, dude, you're in Atlantic City. I'm not too far from you. Um, so uh, any at any rate, so he's done a really good job of just in a neutral way, just covering these protests, just their existence in places where you never would have thought they were. The degree to which they're peaceful or not, they're both, right? I mean, uh, I, uh, there's people that have legitimate grievances here, but yes, yeah, so th- and that's being lost in all it this, is being which is very fucked. much lost because they're just pawns. That's yeah. I'm going to go back to that in a second, but um, the he's covered a lot. He's like he had some photos, I think, like a week or two ago of like gre- of like gr- Green Bay, yeah, like places where you would never expect it, and just showing the damage, like how much stuff was messed up, just not covered. I mean. I was in Wilmington, Delaware for the Wilmington riots when they happened. They got within about six blocks of where I was staying, right? And that was covered by the AM radio station. I don't like that's part of the Philadelphia media market. I don't think it made Philadelphia news at all, which is weird. Wilmington's the second biggest city in the whole market, um, or at least uh, second most major city, let's say, in that market that they just like didn't talk about that. It's like it never happened. It's weird. Like, very, very weird. Yeah. Well, um, and the, like, how much does the, again, going back to year zero, the destruction of property and the disrespect for property rights, how how much is that? Like, is there a coordinated effort by people who want to bring socialism or communism to America to, to do this? Well, it's not socialism or communism, right? I think for the reasons I gave, because the, the people that are in charge of this stuff on the ground or the people that so are much more corporate overtake. Yeah. Right. They're, they're more, they're more interested in this sort of bizarre social agenda, right? That they use economic, the economic talk is just sort of used as a subterfuge to, to sort of 
smuggle in this weird social agenda. You know what I mean? I, I don't. I don't think this is any sort of what you describe is in fact the left as it stands in the West today. It's not the left, I guess, in the hypothetical or if you, you know ideological way. But it is what the left has become. Whether anybody on the left likes it or not is is sort of what we've been describing you know throughout this podcast which is sad but that's unfortunately what it is they know how to wield the mob that's for sure yeah right and it's it has it is backed by corporate america i mean this was someone referred to these as state-sponsored riots which was kind of true right like you had the police were told not to do anything and the and the uh dude in philly it was like yeah they were fucking ghost riding police cars down the street and setting them on right. fire. Like, what the fuck? You know, corporations weren't were condoning it rather than than condemning it, right? You know what I mean? So it was it was a wild situation. It very much was. Let me finish. Actually, I want to finish something here first too. Well, okay, I'll I'll roll into it here. I want to keep my thought flowing. So it very much was, and I'll explain what I mean by this: a riot from above to below. Right, and I, and I want to finish that by talking about the other two sort of classes that I didn't mention here, how they play into this. So you have a, a working class in the United States who's not going to get anything from this. This is terrible for them. Their little family-owned businesses, which family-owned businesses, we can talk about whether they're working class or not. They are workers, man. I mean, they're working. At, they're not really making their money by exploiting labor. I mean, they're, they're a lot of these businesses in these inner cities, like a bodega, like they're putting in the majority of the labor right there. Yeah, my parents so, are at the coffee shop right now working. Exactly, right. So the at the end of the day, um, those people got screwed. The people that owned all those small businesses, in the, most of which were minority owned, by the way. Uh, as Michael Tracy's done a great job pointing out, they got screwed. They they're j- they got wrecked. Um, people that live in those neighborhoods are screwed because there's not going to be any additional. Like a lot of those stores aren't going to come back. Corporate America's not going to come in and fill the void. So this has materially reduced their quality of life um, for work. The working class people that live in those neighborhoods. So they got wrecked by this. Like this has been uh, undoubtedly bad. And then. You know, you have sort of the lumpen proletariat, which are people for people that aren't familiar with that term. That's people who aren't even they're actually below working class. They, they don't have any sort of work or if they do, it's not steady work or the, or if they do have work, it's criminal work. Right. So uh, criminals would be an example of lumpen proletariat. Traditionally, they would talk about people who are surviving on alms, which nowadays, I guess, would be like welfare, something people that aren't working at all, um, that just aren't capable of doing so. Uh, or, you know, people that just, just sort of bounce from thing to thing and just don't have any sort of steady employment. And when you call, when you use that term, that's not a condemnation of those people as people, right? It's a, uh, it's descriptive. You know what I mean? It's just saying it's it's not like trying to demonize, for instance, people that collect government benefits. It's more just descriptive of their situation, right? So, I you know I'm not like a Marxist, but I tend to look at that an analysis sometimes through that lens. And if you look at the traditional, old-fashioned, or orthodox Marxist analysis of this, Marx considered them unorganizable. Right. Like you couldn't they were just too desperate, in other words, to be able to have any sort of class consciousness. 
And just even beyond what Mark specifically said about it, I mean, they're just they're just so desperate that they'll do anything, right? Because they're only looking at, and this is not assigning blame. It's just an unfortunate uh, description of the situation as it is. They're like looking one day at a time, like you know. So if they have the ability to loot a store, they're going to do it. You know what I mean? Because they can't afford to think about the long term effects on their neighborhood the way, say, a working class person might. You know. You know, that's the bottom line. So if you look at who's participating in the riots, it's the PMCs and the lumpen proletariat that are sort of participating in this in this situation. Because And the lumpens are just pawns, right? They're just yeah. being used because they're desperate people looking for anything that can better themselves, whether that be looting well, this was, or... This played out in Minneapolis. Like you saw, like, and they described this on No Agenda. There was like three phases of it. You had the... the peaceful protest like during the early morning afternoon and then yeah. you had the pmc class who, who wanted to drive this cultural division they came in they broke the windows they didn't yeah. loot and then at night the lump in proletariat would come in and loot right exactly it's, yeah yeah and that's that, that's that's how it broke down tracy by the way has a good youtube interview with one of the guys that participated in burning down the police the police station uh, i haven't watched it yet it's been on his patreon though right? yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, you should check that out. Uh, so it's it's just fascinating. So the best um, visual signifier of this is was it the New York City police budget? I think was last week um, when they when they defunded the police in New York or they or they cut the budget big. Like, did you watch any of this? No, I didn't. I didn't catch this. Okay, so New York had a vote uh, on their police budget. You know, obviously there's a big defund the police movement right now. Uh, which is PMC driven primarily. Abolish the police. Right, right, right. Yeah, both abolish and defund the police are primarily PMC driven movements because they don't have to live with it. Right, the the consequences. Um, so if you uh, anyway, the, in anticipation of the vote, which did end up panning out, I think they cut one billion of the six billion NYPD budget. So there's going to be some wild stuff going on, as we've seen already with New York policing reduced. How murders have skyrocketed. Yes. So that aside, the best visual of this whole visual descriptor of this whole cultural revolution is there's a video of the protests that were going on in anticipation of the vote. It was like the night before. I think they were out protesting like all night because I think I guess the vote was the next morning. And there's a gentleman in a dress at the front lines. Oh, my God. Yelling and yelling and screaming. Yeah, tits, too. Yes. Yelling and screaming at an African-American police officer. And the crux of the insults were around the fact that the police officer did not attend college. Yes. Or it actually not uh, even did not attend college. I think circle. didn't attend enough college. I actually think he didn't. He didn't even I don't think imply that he didn't go to college at all. I think if I remember, the implication was that he only went to like junior college. Like he didn't actually have a, a bachelor's degree. That's wild. So that is very clearly a, re- uh, you know, a, and he, that person is a, like an exemplary personification of the dysgenic, disgusting, correct aesthetic yeah. that you were describing earlier. Yeah, it is. It is. And that's, and by the way, and I know you don't mean it this way and I'm going to clarify for myself too. That's not, I'm not bashing gay people. This guy was just an ugly guy. Like, you know, like <laughs> no, he's ugly personality. He's an ugly any- guy. He was an ugly man with an ugly personality saying ugly things to an African-American police officer who was just trying to do his job. He called him Black Judas, I believe. Yes, Black Judas. Yep. Yeah. 
Black Judas and then went on and on about how the guy didn't have, uh, you know, didn't have uh, uh, the appropriate level of education to be able to, I guess, not only have an opinion, but even be able to supposedly do that job. So, so drawing right. that line between the PMC and the working class. Right, exactly. And they'll counter. So if you talk to someone that's a police defender, I mean, they'll counter this by saying uh police aren't workers right because they enforce the the evil system right which is i'm going to tell you why that's bullshit for, for a couple of different reasons number one police are workers what the service that they they work and they provide a service and that service is security um because regardless of what else they might do in addition to what i am saying they absolutely provide law order and security for you and your family no matter what social class you are at some level now do they maybe unfairly and unjustly harass certain people all of that may be the case but that doesn't take away from the fact that they do they do in addition to any bad things that they may do provide that service right now the perspective you'll often get from police abolishers and police defenders is well really what police do is they incarcerate people that are sort of part of the surplus population that don't fit into the economy correctly to sort of get them off the street I'll even concede that that's true, but if that's true, the issue is not with the police. The issue is the system that creates those people that are sort of disjointed and can't fit. You know, you follow what I mean? That's a systemic yeah. issue that has nothing to do with the police. That will go away if you deal with the larger economic issue that creates that class of people, right? I mean, that's that's the issue you have to deal with there, not the fact that the police are are or are not getting them off the street that's a that's a really ass backwards way to deal with that problem and it's the most disconcerting and frankly disheartening point of this whole thing everybody's so fucking confused and they're swinging at the wrong problem right because it's like here's the bottom line you could create an economy well i don't know that you could but let's say hypothetically you could create an economy that ensured material security for everyone no one was precarious. Everyone had food. Everyone had their needs met. You would still need police. Like, you might need less of them, right? But you absolutely would still need them because some people are just freaking crazy, right? Like, I mean, some that and that's been since the beginning of time. Like, would domestic violence be reduced for, I'm going to use that as one example. If the hypothetical I just gave existed, absolutely. Yeah, it absolutely would. Would it go away? No. Some people are just cruel and misogynistic or whatever and would still beat their wives. Like, some people would continue to beat their children, even even without those economic pressures on them, yeah. right? Like, it, th that would still exist and still be a thing, regardless of how much it may be reduced in, a, like, a hypothetically perfect economic Yeah, system. and what does abolishing the, the police, what does that solve? Like, what... Who's going to what well, vacuum is going to be created there and who's well, going to step I mean, in? Here's the thing. If you want to get if you want to if you want to get material about it and say who benefits. Right. Remember, so this kind of goes back to this elite overproduction theory. Right? Who if you look at what the police abolishers want, oftentimes they want a situation where like you're in a hairy spot, you call the police. Right. And the cops come out and they, uh, excuse me, the cops don't come out. You call 911, say. It's not the police. So you call 911 and they want social workers to come out, right? But who does this materially benefit? It creates more PMC jobs, right? Because you, you're going to need a bunch of new bunch of new social workers and like all these other people. Who so can even, coach you through the problem. Right, exactly. So even if you 
don't get to that abolish the police level and you just defund them. Look at the police defunding that's happened, whether it's in New York or Minneapolis or whatever, uh, Los Angeles. They're diverting the money to NGOs, to community groups. This creates uh, this creates those PMC jobs, right? Like this, this helps deal. This is one way of dealing with that elite oversupply problem. So. One thing I think we got to really look at, one thing that may help us is I have a real hope, and I could be wrong about this, could be a false hope, that COVID's really going to slaughter higher education. I um, hope so, too. Because a lot of these problems will go away in the event that you can really get rid of this sort of elite overproduction issue. Yeah, imagine this year will be the test, right? Like, right. kids... Like, oh, hey, fuck it. I'm not paying 50 grand for a Zoom class. I'll go find a job or learn, yeah. learn to code. Right. I'll teach myself. Right, right. And that's good for two reasons. One, it gets us out of this bad cultural revolution stuff. And number two, you can have more of a working class politics at that point because if these people don't go to college, don't get that sense of entitlement to being elite, they'll, they'll become more conscious of their own status as working class. And that creates a larger pool of working class people to act in their own interests it's so fucked the university system's fucking everything up yeah it is in large in very large degree i mean that's that's wh what we're getting at here right because if you didn't have this university degree that made you feel like you were entitled or better than uh a plumber or a janitor or whatever you might be like, shit, I have more in common with those guys than I do with Bezos. We should be like, you know, we're all barely scraping by, you know. We should be sort of unified together in the way we approach politics or economics or whatever the, whatever the situation might be. Maybe we should, get, we should look at things like unionization or whatever, whereas by creating this elite issue, you know, what the degree does is it creates this level of separation where – those people aren't conscious of their shared interests. Yeah. Well, that's why I love being here, right? Like on this island particularly. I got, yes, there's a lot of vacation homes and homeowners that live in Pennsylvania mostly. But yeah. March, April down here with the working class down here. And like it's just normal people. Just yes. Get by. A lot like, of normal people. Yeah, like yeah. I worked out with my former boss at the hot dog stand. We, we've been, he's a big surfer. So we've been surfing a lot and doing workout circuits. And like his life is perfect. He wakes up, gets rolls delivered to his house, does the hot dog stand from eleven to four, hardworking job, and is able to relax and chill with his family. What we've lost in America is there's too few people that are able to make that choice. You know what I mean? Like there's the, everybody. This is all right. How do I phrase this? And I hope that didn't come off wrong. Like I think I'm better than it, or no, like no, no, that no. I am in that I didn't take professional general class and like, Oh look, I'm, I'm meddling with the working class. Right. Like, right. No, I understood what you meant. And, but that should be an option. Like what you, the way you describe your boss's life for everybody. If you have a job and you're willing to show up from nine to five and do it, like you should be materially secure. That's just the end of the story. Like that's just the way, like I, it doesn't mean that, I'm not even talking about eliminating all inequality. Like, I'm not even going that far. I'm just saying, like, if you... It doesn't matter whether you're a butcher or a plumber or a janitor. If you are willing to show up 40 hours a week and do that job, you should be living in a society where you are materially secure. You know, you're not worried about, like, barely getting by or any, like, crazy stuff like that. 
You know what I mean? Regardless of whether or not you're in the richest, you're the richest person in the world. And that's kind of the way you describe your old boss's life. And that should be available to everyone. And right now it's not right. Like if you work for, if you work in the service industry right now, it's just not available to you. You know what I mean? Like you, you probably are going to have to work a lot more than just the one job and not be able to just sort of, uh, hang out and and uh well hang out's not the right word but enjoy time with your family and have your basic material needs met like you're just it's not gonna happen that's what really scares me about the long-term effects of these shutdowns like is it too far gone at this point like have too many people left the workforce permanently that we can't pick up the pieces it's not like left the workforce permanently and it's, I'm more concerned about people that are going to be forced into precarious work as a, as a, uh, as a result of this. So the, the, the expansion of the gig economy versus like secure employment, you know, employment on demand, basically, um, that's very worrying to me. We may have a new wave of low-cost outsourcing because once, they've, once your employer has figured out that your job can be done remotely – which a lot of them have figured out now, they may figure out, like, shoot, like, if it can be done remotely from home in America, then it can be remotely done by a teenager in the Philippines, probably. You know what I mean? Like, I think yeah. they're, we're going to see some of that going on. And I don't know how quick that's going to happen if they'll actually... Like, I don't think... Th- I don't know that they'll want to just, like, massively lay people off, but they it may be a thing where, like, when a guy leaves... They replace them with a Filipino teenager instead of uh, instead of another, you know, middle class American worker. Yeah. So, what are your thoughts on this whole H one B, B one? Here's my hot take on H one Bs. I think H I think someone should sue, stating that H one Bs are uh, unconstitutional indentured servitude contracts under the Thirteenth Amendment. Why is that? Well, because you, you're stuck to your one employer. Uh, so I think there's a strong argument there that that makes it unconstitutional. Like, cause it is an indentured servitude arrangement, right? Like if you leave your job, you have to go back to your country of origin. So what it does is it creates this <clears throat> class of people who like have no leverage over their jobs at all. And that drives everyone else's wages down. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, H1Bs are bad. That's a very good point. I never heard that take. I like that. Yeah, and, and there, you know, there's this sham that, like, oh, well, we only use them for jobs where we can't get, you know, we have to attempt to get domestic employment first. But have you ever seen, like, screenshots of some of the job ads that they use? What they'll do is they'll be like, such and such job, master's degree required, pay is minimum wage or something crazy like that, right? And then they can post that and leave that up for however many months to prove that, you know, they couldn't get an American to fill that job and then they go get an indentured servant to fill it. And yeah, no Americans would be like minimum wage with a master's degree. Right. No one's going to take that job. Right. Exactly. So that's, they try to make the job as unappealing as possible when they post it because they don't want applicants, uh, so that they can get someone, you know, an indentured servant to do it. Jeff, are you racist? (laughs) It's, (laughs) It's not e- well. The funny part about people when they make that accusation about if you oppose H one Bs or something like that is really, if you want to improve minority impro- employment in those fields, then you should like instead of getting some H one B, 
hire an underprivileged person and train them. A lot of these jobs don't need, you don't really need a master's degree. Just go out, find a smart, promising person. Uh, hell, even if you're, I mean, if you want to do it on a straight up affirmative action basis and you only are going to hire someone of color, that's still better than like an H-1B situation, right? Because you're taking an American, you're creating an American job, you know, with someone who is, you made someone's life materially better, right? So you're making, I get my point that I was trying to make there very inelegantly is if you care about material improvements in the lives of people who are racial or cultural minorities, H-1Bs are not the answer to that. The answer to that is go hire an American who, because of their situation, may not have the appropriate qualifications for that job and train them to do it. Yeah. No, they need to go through the university system. They need to get indoctrinated first. And then we're going to offer the minimum wage. And they're not going to take it. Right. And then they're going to go burn police stations down. Right. And exactly. tell you that you need to look at this Calvin Klein poster and believe that's a beautiful person. Right. It's horrible. Like, the whole thing is, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's it's disorienting and it's it's bad. But that's the situation where, unfortunately, you know, we are today. Uh, Could this potentially be, like, uh, the night is darkest before the dawn situation? Like you said, hopefully... Uh, the COVID situation yeah. dissuades people from going to university and like, could this move people to more distributists? Like I, I could see a potential balkanization of the United States happening over this decade. Well, the problem with balkanization though, is it won't be geog- It won't, it won't just, it won't be like a decentralized governing thing. It would be more like everyone fighting for control of the central authority. You know what I mean? Because like, that's kind of what they want and, and you know why they're doing this. So, that I'm not particularly uh, I'm not particularly optimistic about that side of it. Um, in terms of does it decentralize governance for us to some degree? What I think has been a positive about with regard to all this is that the COVID response actually has been pretty decentralized, right? Unfortunately, we've had you had the ability of the media to sort of scaremonger some places into doing things they didn't want to do, but we have had a decentralized response. There hasn't, the response has been very regional, either state by state or in many states, uh, county by county or city by city, right? Like even something like masking regulations in a lot of states, that's not a state issue. That's a, a city issue or a county issue. You know what I mean? Depending on how they want to manage their specific hospital capacity, what, you know, number of infections they're willing to have at a given time for a variety of reasons, right? How they want to handle it. So I guess that's one positive um, that I can see out of this whole thing. Uh, the biggest thing, the biggest potential positive out of the COVID thing, I think, is the university thing. If we can really drive the universities down, university attendance down, a lot of these universities start to go out of business. Uh, etc. That could be the one silver lining here out of the whole thing. And it could also, by the way, the other part that could happen is, and I don't know if they're going to do this, but if the people on top decide, hey, like a lot of these PMC jobs are pretty unnecessary and we don't need them, and they start actually getting rid of more of them, that could go one of two ways. One, it could make the whole elite oversupply effect that I just gave even more extreme or two 
it could actually break it. The oversupply could become so great that they have no choice other than to accept the fact that they're working class now. Yeah, people have to humble themselves. Yeah. And I don't know which one of those two directions we're going to go. Well, yeah, that and then even trickling down further in the education system, like homeschooling, people getting getting people out of the public school indoctrination system. Um, yeah, we'll see your homeschooling or, you know, homeschools, Catholic schools, things of that nature. Um, the only reason why I don't know about that is uh, just the financial aspect. People are going to be in a tough financial spot, and I don't know that they're going to be able to. Yeah, no, that's a good point. <sighs> such a weird time. It's been such a weird year, 2020, man. It has. It's been... Uh, We're halfway through. Do you think it gets worse or better? It all. I think it all depends on, like, the next month or so, because if, if things really do burn out in Texas and Arizona... And uh, if things just sort of burn out and and when they burn out and continue to burn out, the minimum the minimal regulations that are in place in Texas and Arizona go away. Right. So in Texas, the main thing is basically just that there are no bars and you have to wear a mask now. So if it burns out and they get rid of the masks and the bar uh, restrictions or elimination of, of indoor bars and they and it stays burned out, that's a good sign because eventually other states are going to have to follow that, whether they want to or not, because the evident, like people will just be like, what the hell? Like I can go to this other state and, uh, party. Right. And it's not just Texas and Arizona that are taking this approach, but they're the two biggest states, I guess they're, and they're under the microscope right now. Right. They're taking this approach. For instance, New Jersey's never going to loosen up until something like that happens. Right. Like it's going to take, something like that happening before like a state that we're in here in Jersey for that to ever, for our, our regulations to ever lighten up. Yeah. Or a vaccine, I suppose. Right. I, <sighs> they could, they could go for that as the, as the end game too. But, but that, even if a vaccine does come out, that would be like end of fourth quarter, 2020 from what I see. So as to whether to your initial question with whether the second half of the year is better or worse, if we have to wait for a vaccine, it's not going to get any better. Um, I will not be, getting anywhere near that vaccine i can tell you that for sure on the other side if it's the burnout effect then it it could potentially be better right i mean it could i'm not saying this is the case but like let's say in the best case scenario this is done by the end of july then that's possible right the things could get better in the second half of the year yeah then they do they turn up the cultural stuff until the election and then maybe maybe that's a good question i don't know they gotta worry. They they gotta worry about that too. You know, like this, at what point do you go too far? Yeah. Um. And it, it, it there's a boomerang effect there. So I don't know. Yeah. And I don't know that they know. I don't know that people are telling pollsters the truth about their opinions on a lot of these social movements because you're told at work you get fired right if you oppose it. So you're gonna even though you're anonymous to a pollster, you're just you're used to just saying like, oh, this is something that I support, or that's. Or whatever. How crazy is that? People are getting fired for having an opinion. Like, is that even legal? Is that yes? Legal? It's it's, uh, it's at will employment. So, okay. it's uh, the the default rule in the United States in every jurisdiction is at will employment. Meaning you can fire people for any reason or no reason. Now, there are modifications to at will employment in every state and even some at the federal level that protect people as they should, by, for their race, uh, their religion, their ethnicity, their, their immigration status. Well, not their, 
immigration status as in legal or illegal, but immigration status as like, are you an immigrant or are you native born? Um, all those things are all protected classes under federal and state law as they should be. But that's the exception, not the rule. Um, you don't have to protect any in the United States anyone's opinions. Now, there are people that believe that employment law should adapt to say, like, anything you say outside of work should just be protected speech and you can't be fired for that, right? And that's – obviously that's uh, – I'm sympathetic to that position. Um, it's certainly not a libertarian position, right? The libertarian position would be at-will employment in all cases. If you don't like what someone says outside of work, you should just be able to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but – I think that there's, you know, I'm not a libertarian, so I see that there's some merit, uh, in fact, that position that people just shouldn't be fired. And I mean, it just, it, that's another reason why employers like all this stuff too. It just kind of makes people easier to fire. If you want to get rid of somebody, I mean, even though it's at will, um, it's still nice to have a cause to fire somebody because it just, you don't have to worry about lawsuits later on. It just it gives you good cover with the with the other employees for morale purposes. So if you could just search their social media and uh, you know pull something out of context and go after them, you know. I'm very thankful for where I work and having this podcast. Yeah, we're all lucky. We're all lucky in a lot of different ways. One of the ways that like I look, one of the things that I think about when I think about political economy too, is like, I think predominantly the position that I'm in, which is very fortunate is like luck. Um, I'm not saying like that. I never worked hard or never did anything good, but I think there's like a a massive luck factor. So I always think about it. Like if I didn't have the luck factor, like, man, I really would hope that I'd be able to, uh, you know, go to work, break rocks for eight hours, go home, not have to think about it and be materially secure. Yeah. Right. Because I would never want a job. Like, there's no way I would ever work as like, you know, even if I could in like a corporate executive position where that sort of becomes your life. And there's this like weird inner office politics and all that sort of stuff. I would just never do that. Right. I'd rather go just just do labor eight hours a day and not think about it. Um, and I don't say that because I, I don't mean to imply that those sort of jobs are easy because I certainly don't believe that they are. Um, you just don't want to deal with the bullshit, the monotonous yeah. bullshit of corporate America. Exactly. And you should just be able to do that, whether it's l- physical labor or any other kind of labor that you're providing. Just show up, do your job, go home, not think about it, <clears throat> and and have material security. I mean, that's the bottom line. Does MMT get us there? <clears throat> oh, you want to transition to the MMT discussion? <laughs> I think that's a good transition Yeah, yeah, point. sure. So... <clears throat> As I told Marty, you know, before we started recording, uh, I recently read Stephanie Kelton's book, which just came out like at the, I think, June 6th it came out. I, I actually pre-ordered it because I was very interested in it. So I got it right away and read through her book on MMT. <clears throat> That's a hell of a lot of background noise we got there. The noon bell. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a, for anybody that was considering picking it up, uh, it's written for a general audience. Like you definitely don't have to have like any level of economic knowledge to understand it. Um, it's mostly written for an audience that doesn't understand. Most people listening to this podcast probably understand the concept that the government can print unlimited money, right? That the federal government cannot, for instance, default on its debts, you know, with a fiat currency. That's not a difficult concept 
for readers of this podcast, I mean, listener, readers of the podcast, listeners of this podcast probably don't understand. However, the book does spend a lot of time on that because that's not something that regular people understand. Like she spends time contrasting the situation of a country like the U.S. or Japan that has control of its currency versus like Greece. In other words, we could have an economic disaster in the U.S., but it's not going to be the one that Greece had because Greece doesn't control uh, its, its own money supply. So, I mean, that's a big part of the book. And then it just sort of un- it sort of goes into how MMT works, which is not that hard to understand. I mean, the idea is basically that right now when we want to control money supply, the Federal Reserve does this via uh, non-political, mostly or supposedly non-political process that involve that mostly involves controlling interest rates. Right. Whereas. In an MMT system, you move this whole money supply expansion contraction thing to the fiscal side, <clears throat> to the government itself, where uh, when things get bad, you know, the government just starts directly spending money on, you know, whether that be unemployment benefits, welfare, anything you could you could possibly imagine, infrastructure investment, anything that you could theoretically imagine in that regard. And then when it wants to reduce the money supply, it either cuts back on some of that, let's say infrastructure spending or whatever, or it raises taxes, right? So that's sort of it. It's a different way of attacking the the fiat currency puzzle there. Yeah, raising taxes is their way of contracting the supply. Right. It's raising taxes or cutting spending. So one way, part of it is self-regulating. In that she envisions uh, eliminating unemployment benefits, essentially, and replacing them with a federal jobs guarantee, which her benefit, she did recognize, would be best uh, carried out at a, at a decentralized level. So it would be federally funded, but your local municipality would determine how the money's spent. So, like, if you had a litter problem, people on the jobs guarantee might be picking up litter all day, for instance, right? Like, whatever the case might be. And that's what... <clears throat> in large part self-governing because what's going on there, that piece of it, because obviously spending on the jobs guarantee goes up when unemployment goes up and uh, spending on the jobs guarantee goes down when unemployment goes down automatically, right? Because when employers are hiring, so long as they're paying more than the minimum wage, which the jobs guarantee would pay the minimum, whatever under that system you feel the minimum wage should be, um, they're going to leave their jobs guarantee job and go, you know, go into private employment. So that part's self-governing. However, stuff like infrastructure spending, there's a lot of other pieces to this that would not be self-governing and would require a lot of political will on the part of politicians to either stop them, you know, at certain times or to, on the flip side, raise taxes in order to drain money out of the money supply. Because the, the, when you're looking at things through an MMT lens like they do, taxes have two purposes. It's not really to finance spending. They consider spending is done by just creating money. The uh, the the, spe- the purpose of taxes is twofold. Number one, to create demand for the currency. So they, they do the whole charterless thing, right, uh, where that's how you create demand for currency, by requiring that the taxes be, sp- be paid in that currency. Mm-hmm. And then number two, uh, to reduce the money supply, you know, when necessary, to drain money, to drain money out, to prevent inflation from going crazy so the bottom line with the system is i think as it a lot of people that are hard money advocates i think tend to go hard against mmt almost as if it's worse than the current system but i don't think that's right i actually don't think it's any worse than the current fiat system it 
in fact, in a sense, might be better in that it's so much more transparent. It's it's much more transparent than the Federal Reserve. Just you know, it's all of its its actions, and it does create the w- different winners. It doesn't change the losers, right? So, people are who are who are trying to save and get ahead are still losers for all the same reasons that they're losers in uh, a in the current fiat system. But it does at least change the winners instead in that instead of like the Cantillon effect sort of works backwards. Instead of the people at the top of the economic period pyramid getting the money first and therefore getting all the benefits before the inflation kicks in. Typically speaking, at least to some extent, in an MMT system, at least how they envision it, uh, prescri- well, I guess I should say as the as most MMT advocates would prescribe because they do make this point. She does make this point in the book. The MMT is really just a descriptive mechanism more so than prescriptive. They do make prescriptions based on viewing money through the MMT lens. So if you look at MMT, how's it? Yeah. How's it prescriptive? It's never been enacted. Well, it's how is it prescriptive or descriptive? Excuse me. Well, it's, it's a description of the way the fundamental nature of money. That's what they would say. In other words, you follow what I'm saying? In other words, yeah. it's uh, I kind of mixed the descriptive and prescriptive parts there when I explained it, which was inelegance on my own part. But it's more so that MMT, the idea behind MMT is really just the idea that taxes don't finance spending, that money creation finances spending. That's really MMT. And then most MMT advocates having that frame move to a set of prescriptions which involve instead of targeting interest rates and doing all that stuff that you control the money supply fiscally through taxation and spending um sort of uh you know etc in that regard but anyway my point was in most of the policy prescriptions that mmt advocates used to make while it doesn't change the losers it does change the winners to some extent the at least the people at the top aren't the only winners. They are winners to some extent, right? Because when that money gets spent, it's getting spent on favored businesses and areas and things of that nature. But it does allow at least people at the bottom to partake in some of the Cantillon, the positive effects of the Cantillon effect, right? Because they're for like the jobs guarantee is a good example. Like if you're taking advantage of the jobs guarantee, you inst- you are one of the beneficiaries of the of the Cantillon effect because you're getting the new money first. Yeah. In that particular instance. Yeah. Yeah, and what uh, the best critiques I've seen of this to date is that they're tying whether or not they expand or contract this money supply to inflation to the CPI, which is historically a pretty terrible metric. Right, and that's not really different than the current system, right? Like, no. Yeah. Not it, at all. It, it shares all the same flaws of the of. That's, that was the thing that I came away with most by reading the book. It's a quick read, by the way, like if anybody wants to go, wants to check it out and, and understand MMT better. Even even it, if your reason to understand it better is that you think it'll allow you to make sicker burns on Twitter, uh, <laughs> you know, rather than than just sort of the very superficial, uh, you know, magic money tree criticisms of it. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, it, it, like I said, the main takeaway there is that it changes the winner's at least to some extent, not the losers yeah. in the system. Yeah, and again, just from a heuristics complex system standpoint, it just doesn't make any sense to me because they're trying to allocate capital even more granularly, which I think 
more so than the current system. Yeah, I mean they're they're giving it out. Yeah, I guess you're right, right? Because if you're increasing money supply in the under the current system, right, the the banks are actually allocating capital in sort of a market, uh, in sort of a, in a, the market is allocating it to some extent, right? Like the banks are getting all the benefits, but the government's not telling the banks who they have to lend it to. Yeah, instance. exactly. So uh, the government's whereas, just trying to push it to certain sectors. And yeah, that part of it doesn't bother me so much. Uh, you know, it, because you know the bet. You're right. I mean, it does create uh, that. It's still artificial capital, and just the fact that the banks can allocate it usually means that it's it uh, creates even more of an, an equalizing effect. So, if you had had a gun to my head and you said, "Hey, we have to have a fiat system where we're going to be expanding the money supply," which way do you think is better? I do think that like Stephanie Kelton's way to increase the money supply is probably better. Um, in at least at least in a vacuum than the current system that we have now. That's not me knocking hard money. Obviously, I'm on this show, but uh, like if you had to have one of the two systems, I'd probably rather have the Stephanie Kelton system than the uh, than the current one. Yeah, but how how uh, I'll be the MMT. Well, yeah, take the other side. Of Antagonist it. here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like so, how how would they enact the? the contraction and expansion of the money supply. They'd have to do it via taxes, right? And how do you get Congress to agree on what taxes Yeah, I mean, that's going to be tough, but I guess my counter, it would be partially automatic with the jobs guarantee, but you're right. You would have, that's the, the big issue right now. But here's the thing. Um, we kind of have this problem now with interest rates. Look how, look how politicized the setting of interest rates has become and all the pressure that uh, is on the Fed to like, I don't know that they're ever going to really substantially raise interest rates. What we'll do you never think? Do. Like, we'll never do. Yeah, they can't. They literally. So I can't. don't know that we're any worse off. Like I don't know that it's any more likely that the Fed would contract the money supply by raising interest rates in a significant way, as opposed to Congress either raising taxes or cutting like things like infrastructure spending. I don't know the answer to that question. I I, I think. I view those both as equally difficult politically. Yeah. And how would you do this handoff from a Federal Reserve system to a monetary system based on? Well, I mean, you would just I don't think it actually requires much of anything. They could the government would just start spending and telling the Treasury to credit its account. I believe that's 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 it. That's simple. Yeah. Like would the Fed go away? No, I mean, they would but they would have a much reduced role. They would literally just be acting as the federal government's bank. Yeah. Eh, I don't know if I like that. It's too much government power. Well, right. You, they wouldn't be, I guess, independent anymore. Well, I mean, I guess they, they really they still would be independent. They really aren't right. independent right now. They just wouldn't be They merged with the Treasury during this whole thing. Yeah, that's basically correct, too. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> so many problems. What are your Bitcoin thoughts? Do you have any Bitcoin? This is a Bitcoin podcast. Should we talk about Bitcoin? It's pretty, yeah, we'll talk about it. It's Bitcoin. pretty boring these days. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot going on, right? So it's... Uh, it's... I'm going to talk about a big. Uh, I'm going to talk about a slightly larger topic that's going to funnel into that. Okay, uh, I like this. I'll go with that. So, one of the things I was thinking about this past week is, in terms of the COVID stuff, have we hit an inflection point now? I have never. One of the criticisms I got, and I, when I say criticisms, not a criticism as in, like, screw this guy, he's criticizing me, but I think uh, a very valid criticism on the last episode that we talked about, and this was from Connor Brown, who we both, both of our friends, 
um, said that he thought I was doing a little bit of a neo-Luddite thing, right? In other words, where uh, I was kind of taking the, you know, not full-on Kaczynski, but, like, taking the position that uh, we may have reached the point now where technology is no longer beneficial to humanity, right, on the whole. There's always been situations where individual technologies have not been beneficial to humanity, but we have, have we hit that inflection point? And when he said that at the time, I actually said that's not really an invalid criticism. Uh, I don't, I don't think that's wrong. I, I, I think about that a lot, and I don't know the answer. And this has pushed me a little more into that luddite camp. You'll see how I get into Bitcoin in a second, because Bitcoin is, of course, a technological innovation, right? So I don't think we could have done the COVID response that we did if it weren't for technology. Part of the reason you were able to placate people to keep them in their homes and docile and all this stuff is that you had you were feeding them Netflix and you were having them Zoom with their family, which, as we've discussed, I'm not Zooming with family. I'm going to go visit you. You know what I mean? Like, that's how this works. It's just there's something wrong with it. I don't know, from a human perspective. It's a pod. Yeah, it is you a pod. You get to speak from your pod. This is living in the bugs, living in the pod and eating bugs, right? Like, this, this is there, – there's an aspect of that to all of this. Um, and the, the, the pod bugs – future i think is requires a certain level of technology that we have now that we didn't have before and as a thought experiment i've been thinking about where is that if you believe that and i'm not saying that you necessarily do marty but i'll let you kind of chime in here too where do you think that inflection point was at what point like like a a rough year not you didn't you don't have to like an exact year but like roughly where do you think we hit that point where we're doing more harm than good now social media Social media? 2005, 2006. So you think like 2005, 2006? Yeah. Yeah, and what's interesting about that, I don't think my answer is substantially different. I'm going to give mine in a second, but I was thinking about, like, Bitcoin, which we all view in a tremendously positive way, right? And, and I think I'm going to take a second here. Sometimes when I do these podcasts, I get, because I have sort of a weirder Twitter presence, um, I get people that might not understand what I mean by that. Uh, and, and maybe didn't listen to, to prior episodes. So I'm going to take a quick second here to explain what I mean. In that, like, I don't view Bitcoin, and if you want a more thorough exposition on this, you should go listen to the last two episodes I did with Marty. But I don't view Bitcoin as a, uh, from the typical libertarian perspective, right? I view hard money as much more of an equalizing factor, um, which I think even libertarians do as well. Um, but I don't necessarily take the whole the whole I'm not the typical like Ron Paul gold guy I guess is the point I think you can make a very solid case from a populist or even if you're uh, if you consider yourself uh, a straight-up leftist on economic issues for hard money and I'm gonna take I'm gonna shill something let's put this in the show notes I'll give you the link um, uh, Nuevo Curso, which is a uh, – they're somewhere in Latin America, but they, they write in English and Spanish. They, they're a Marxist organization, like straight up, like that, um, very much so. But they recently wrote like a really good article on how the soft money system is manipulating the current economy in the United States and all the negative impacts of that. So I think that would be interesting, I think, for a lot of regular podcast readers to check out. Yeah, we'll definitely share that link. Yeah, so at any, at any rate um, – Going back to the technology question, uh, 
Um, we're all hopeful about Bitcoin, whether it be from a libertarian perspective or, in my case, not from a libertarian perspective, um, about bringing some sort of positive change to society in general. I don't Bitcoin, if you think about it, really ain't all that technological, right? You don't oh. need very much. It's a, it's math, really. Right. So you could run people smarter than us. I hope actually will debate what, what I'm about to ask right now in the maybe in the Twitter uh, replies for this episode. Like what would like how good could we get Bitcoin in 2005 or even like 1999? Right. And I'll give like some of my like ideas on this. Right. Like I think like you would have I think the problem would be like you'd need you could still be pretty damn trust minimized, but probably not quite as trustless as it is today. Like that would be probably my thought. And the reason I think that is you'd have an initial block download problem, right? Like well, that's already a problem we have. Like the amount of time, if you just want to set up a node in your own home, it takes to do initial block download. I think you'd see a lot more of like James O'Byrne type solutions, right? Um, in place which I don't think are necessarily the end of the world if enough people are out there posting. In ver Should people be relying on that right now in current technology all the time? No, I'm not saying it isn't. But in our, in our thought experiment... I'm going to assume UTX does stand. Uh, the, okay. the whole chain state loads in the background. Like If you're willing to wait weeks, like you're fine. Yeah, so there you go. Right. So let's say you know, solutions like that would become far more important. And you'd be spending more time in that assumed status, right, where you're, where there's some level of trust. It's not total trust on a single third party, right, because you'd have to have... Multiple people signing signatures yeah, of plots. You'd have to have multiple people signing, and you could even have somebody, like, that you know really well be one of those people that sign off that everything's right, right? There's nothing fishy going on. So... I, like you, do not, I'm not, I like Assume UTXO, and I think no matter how fast bandwidth gets, we're, we're going to see that. Um, become it's inevitable. A bigger part of Bitcoin, right? So that becomes, like, far more important, right? How much time it would take to actually catch up. Particularly, like, say, like, in 1999, it might have taken a really long time to catch up. But you could still process new blocks. They're, they're a megabyte. Or I guess they're, I guess, bigger than that now. They can be two megabytes or, you know, depending on a lot of other factors with segregated witness. But that was not... Every 10 minutes, downloading that much was not an incomprehensible task, uh, you know, even then. And he maybe and maybe you couldn't have done segregated witness, I don't know, and gone to that larger block size, uh, you know, in 99 at least. You probably could have done it in 05, Right. I'm just curious where, where all the cryptography was all the cryptography that's used. Uh, See, I don't consider that technology because that's like that's just human knowledge. Okay. So like what I'm saying is like if we got frozen tech, not in terms of I know this is sort of a weird distinction I'm making, but like if the Internet couldn't get any faster and we were frozen to in technology today from either 99 or 05. And those are two different situations. Uh, I see what you're getting. But at. we still all the advancements in math were still being made, right? Like, you know, because math is always there. So the point you're like, trying to get is, like, at what point could the internet infrastructure have ossified in the past that you think would be sustainable for us in the future? Yeah, and just sort of uh, saying tech in general is like a weasel word, but just sort of like what we generally would think of as tech if it had ossified, because I would consider that sort of relevant to the inflection point conversation, because, like, 
you know, if we had a, 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 a technological state, and this is a thought experiment because technology doesn't stop, right? But if we had a, if we could have a technological state that stopped at some point in the past, which would have prevented these lockdowns from being as severe as they were and definitely would have prevented them from things from lingering long past any sort of medical uh, justification, right? Because you wouldn't have had Zoom and, you know, all this other crap. Could we still have had Bitcoin? I think that we can. I think it would have been different. Uh, but I, you certainly could have still had on-chain Bitcoin, I think. With the initial block down being an issue, download being an issue, I think you would have had something more along the lines of like Assume UTXO stuff. I don't know. I, you nor I are uh, technical enough to know how long that catch-up period would have been taking, how long people would have been relying on that sort of... I, you, would you call that distributed trust? Because you're not trusting one third party? you think that's a fair term? I think so, yeah. Yeah. So you're sort of relying on a, a distributed trust model there. The big change would have been that uh, I don't think you could have done lightning. Right. Like, I think I don't know that you could have done lightning in that. And, and I if I'm wrong, somebody more technical could certainly uh, note in the comments. You might have had a more federated system. You know what I you know what I mean? Of like, uh, why can't you do lightning? Isn't built on C++ or at least? Well, it is. But I don't C know. Lightning I don't is. know that lightning's a lot more complicated. So I don't know that we'd be able to do we, we would have the processing power for normies to just have that running in their house yeah, the latency yeah. Think, yeah yeah i don't know and it but there's lightning people way smarter than us that will probably answer this question and i'm kind of interested to know uh on twitter if if i if that if i'm wrong but let's assume that i am wrong and you couldn't have done you couldn't have done lightning uh you probably would have had like a federated type thing you know maybe it would have been something like um Liquid. Thank you. It's like it just like it jumped out of my head. Maybe it would have been something more like liquid rather than lightning. Um, but again, I don't know. Is lightning better than that system? Yeah, I'm not. This should not be interpreted as me like, uh, you know, arguing against lightning. But I, I don't know that that would have been fatal to Bitcoin. That still might have worked. We still might have been fine. Yeah. And that kind of factors into my thinking in terms of like where we uh, where that inflection point is. And I, and I assume there's a difference between. No, so the technology. But I think there's a difference between 99 and 05 too. Like I, I don't know with Lightning specifically. I would be more confident as a guy that's not smart enough to make this statement with any confidence at all. I would f still feel more confident in saying that in 99 than 05. Yeah. Well, I don't want you to be a luddite. I don't want you to be a neo luddite. Like, what's the problem? Is it the, or the, the problem is more social or is it the technology? Is it I think the technology, the technology the amplifies technology the social. Can, uh, yeah, the technology brings out, I think, like a lot of the our most antisocial qualities. I think that's the problem. It enables them. Yeah. Like you could always. But live, would it could yeah. it amplify better qualities if the class structure was a different way? Like, is the PMC class using the technology? Oh, to, absolutely. There's a chicken and egg issue here, yeah. or, or you know, I there's uh, there's always a, a chicken and egg issue. Is not even the right word. There's always a an economic underpinning here uh, in terms of what what the it's not even necessarily the PMC class it's really just sort of the elite classes um, what technology enables them to do that they wouldn't have ever been able to get away with in the past 
right? Because in other words, there were always people on top. There were people on top in the 80s, the 90s, like, the 70s, but they weren't. There are certain things that technology has enabled them to sort of inflict upon us. Can- cancel culture. Were. The blue check mark cancel culture. Yeah, there you go. I mean, that's, like, that's sort of an example. Imagine if we didn't have the, uh, the elite overproduction. Yeah. And these people were using these tools for good, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's 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 more of a factor, I guess, the technology. You're right. It's not the technology itself. It's the way that people use it um, and what it enables. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is certainly true. I will say I do like the island life, like waking up, working out, leaving my phone here, going surfing, not tweeting as much. Yeah. It's uh, it's good to take a step back, hanging out with family on the beach. Like it's incredible. Yeah, because you're all work from home now. Well, you were work from home even before this hit. Yeah, like yeah. I, my transition's been pretty smooth. But yeah, I've, my cousins who are up in New York, they came down here. They've been down here since March, and we've been hanging out. And we we quarantined for for enough time. Your time, yeah. And then, uh, but no, yeah, going to the beach and we'll probably do that after we wrap up here. I post it and we go down to the beach for a couple hours and then just chill with my family and come back here. It's a great way to live. I mean, you know, I've been living at the shore my whole life, so it's a great way to live, man. It is. It really is. Like, in this summer, particularly, it's uh, very interesting. There's a lot. I, I was like, in April, May, I was like, ah, oh, it's going to be a dead summer. It's not going to be anybody down here. Island's been packed. Really? Yeah. That, it, I've noticed that, too. Uh, like, it, in my town, the shore has been really busy, yeah. Well, it's like people are like, hey, I got nothing else to do. Might as well go to the beach. Exactly. That's my. I'm tired of being tired of being inside for so long. Yeah, I haven't taken polls on this. That's what I'm assuming, though. Like, yeah. Well, uh, and and a lot of other activities, uh, recreational activities, you're not allowed to do. Like you're allowed yeah. to go to the beach. You can't go to a bar. You can't go to a restaurant in New Jersey. Uh, well, you could do outdoor dining in New Jersey, but you can't go to a bar. You can't go to a bowling alley. You can't go to a. You know. Yeah. Yeah. The outdoor stuff's been great here. Um, what I want to end it on is try to end it on a positive note. Like, sure. how, how can we, not me and you, and I don't, I don't know if you can even answer this question, but again, that's the most disheartening thing of the last six months is everybody's striking at the wrong problems. They're being divided on on race and whether or not they want to wear a mask or not instead of focusing on the class issue. How do we shift the conversation back to the class issue? It's a great. It's a great question. And how do we like? How do we just get shake people? Like, it's, uh, like the whole. Ra- I, I hate that race is being br- brought in. Like, obviously, there are racists out there. There are some definitely some problems in yeah. police forces. There are definitely some problems in corporate boardrooms with this shit too. But it's not. I'm gonna. I don't want to get canceled, but like, it's not the core of the problem where the problem is a class issue right the core of the problem is is always a class issue it's always material right i mean because at, at the end of the day the uh, racism is all is always and everywhere when if you're talking about like institutional racism it's always a superstructure based on the base of economic relations right always and everywhere that's al- that's always the case so if you deal with the economic relationships that's where yeah, the the situation has to begin, right? I mean, the the I just said some nonsense there. That's where the solution, you know, uh, has to begin. Honestly, I think it's just a matter of uh, there's going to have to be a certain number of people that are willing to talk about it in public, right. and you're seeing that to some extent 
on both the right and the left now, um, which is to some extent uh, hopeful. You know, at the time when we're at like an all time high for cancellations, you're also seeing people speaking out against it. Uh, Tucker. Right. Whether that's. Yep. That could be Tucker Carlson on the right. It could be Angela Nagel on the left. It could be, you know, uh, Michael Tracy somewhere in the middle or, you know, or Matt Taibbi. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, in terms of that stuff. Ta- By the way, if you're listening, uh, Taibbi's Substack is subscription. But he posted a free one, right? The, the one I'm thinking of, I think, was free. It was like yeah. two weeks ago. It wasn't the most recent one. It was the one before. Um, that's definitely worth checking out that that addresses uh, a lot of the issues that we're talking about um, here today. Um, I'm trying to think if I'm going to... I'll give people a little bit of homework. Is that all right? Like, if yeah. they, they want to read it from differing perspectives, right? I mean, Marty mentioned Tucker Carlson. I think everybody's familiar with him already. Um, in terms of like some lesser known, uh, stuff, if you want to understand a lot of like stuff from people that are much smarter than me that we, that I talked about today in terms of some class issues in the most recent American affairs, uh, Angela Nagel and Michael Tracy wrote a piece that was specifically about how the Bernie Sanders campaign fell apart, but really touches very well on a lot of these issues and how they play out, um, in terms of modern classes American Affairs, I think, two issues ago. American Affairs is fantastic, by the way, uh, and it's a quarterly publication. So when I say two issues ago, it means I think like two quarters ago it was. Julius Krein wrote an article called uh, The Real Class War um, that was very good. Um, Another one that I recommend looking at strongly with regard to all these issues is... um, Adolph Reed, who's a professor at University of Pennsylvania, um, on the left, uh, actually for this is sort of a wild situation. We should talk about this briefly. So, sixteen nineteen project has been actually was sort of the precursor to this everything we've got going on now. It's a historical. It's it's. I mean, regardless of whatever, if you want to think its aims are good or bad, it's just a historical. It's not true. Um, and the organization that actually organized the his sort of group of historians to, to come together and sort of point out all the historical inaccuracies in the 1619 project was uh, World Socialist website, which is the online publication of Fourth International, literally the global Trotskyist organization. They were the people that only people that were willing to like stick their necks out and uh, put and I believe they referred to it as a racialist misclassification of history. Um, you know, obviously they're looking at this from a left perspective. They did an interview, uh, with Adolph Reed on their website, which is WSWS.org that goes into essentially, uh, Reed's theories on all this and how, you you know, the intersection between race and class and and all, a lot of the things that we talked about today, not that he would agree with everything I said, but I think that he's definitely, uh, worth reading on this topic as well. Um, those are the ones that like really stick out in my head right now in terms of things you can read in terms of other podcasts. Like if you want to get, if you want to listen to some perspectives on this stuff from people that are way smarter than me, um, what's left, particularly the last few episodes they've done that were like a panel with, uh, Amy Therese, Oliver Bateman, um, Malcolm, I can't pronounce his last name. He has, uh, I apologize. And Angela (laughs) Nagel, those were all very good. Uh, and then one other one that I'll recommend that talks about this stuff from a sort of non-left perspective 
populist wise is uh good old boys which i retweet those guys all the time yeah um if you want to kind of hear where i get a lot of different ideas oh and Peter Churchin, we'll put it in the show notes. There's a good article on elite oversupply that I can that I'll give you, Marty. You can check out. Yeah, I'll put it all in there. But my point was before I got into all that different stuff. Um, uh, I think like understanding what's going on is honestly the first step, because like I I don't I don't think I understood this always and for the beginning of time. I think it's something probably within the last five years that I've been able to figure out just by reading stuff written by people smarter than me. Um, so I think reading it, understanding it and being able to say it publicly at this point, I mean, that sounds like stupid, like what else can you do? But I don't know what else you can do. Right. And then, oh, and then of course live your own damn life and, you know, li- uh, raise your family the right way and do all the things that are always important, no matter how bad things might be in the public sphere. Yeah. I mean, that's probably the most important thing. I agree. I agree. That's what I love being down here. It's, really drives home that family especially yeah um you know let you it's easy to live here not get distracted by a big city or something yeah. like that i hear you man not today elite overproduction i really like that concept and it, i think it does do a good job of describing some of the the conflict that that we're seeing play out right now yeah i'm pretty amazing that he even was able to like back into the or figure out the fact that it was the 2020s where it was going to boil over in the u.s i mean 2020 on the dot yeah the most interesting year of my life yeah i guess you could <laughs> unfortunately yes yeah well jeff it's always a pleasure it's always been fun man i uh thank you for coming and doing this in person i love that we can do that yeah me too it's a million times better it's great and i'm sure um we'll catch up at some point this year too and Add to this conversation. Absolutely. I don't think uh, any of this is going to stop anytime soon. I always have a ton of fun doing these, man. Dude, so do I. Uh, any last notes or anything? Well, I guess I got to shill my own bags, right? I'm, I always <laughs> have to do that, right? So my day job, how I actually am able to earn a living is, uh, you know, most people listening to this podcast probably are interested in Bitcoin. Uh, if you have a retirement account that you would uh, like to roll over and invest in Bitcoin while being able to hold your own keys, that is my day job. Keykeeperira.com. Check that out if that sounds interesting to you. Uh, there's no, it's not like the competing offerings where they're custodial and they hold your keys or they charge markups whenever you want to buy or sell. You have your own regular exchange account on a regular exchange. You don't pay any. I don't get any vig on your purchases, your sales. There's no storage fees, you know, nothing like that. You just pay the setup fee and uh, $150 a year as, uh, you know, uh, an annual fee. And that's it. You're good to go. It's a pretty good deal. Pretty good setup. That's what I'm trying to do, man. Tax uh, beneficial as well. Tax beneficial. Yeah, exactly. You can... uh, if you have an existing retirement account that you want to move into Bitcoin, you can roll it into this. If you don't have an existing retirement account, you can make annual contributions to something like this. And then, you know, if you uh, when you retire and your Bitcoin's worth 100 times more than it was when you bought it, you don't have to pay any taxes. Boss, I got to yep. I got to set one of these up. It's not hard, right? You just set up a couple LLCs or something like that or what? Yeah, it's not hard. We I mean, we take you through the whole process it takes it's usually you're usually good to go within two weeks of starting the whole process all right boss well jeff again it's always a pleasure thanks man i appreciate it that's all we got this week freaks peace and love